In this episode, I'm once again joined by Morgan O. Smith, teacher of non-duality, and under the stage name Mr. Mo, was a stand-up comedian and host of the Gemini award-winning television show Buzz. In this episode, Morgan reflects on his creative journey and its clash with his spiritual awakenings. Morgan recounts his childhood creative impulses and traces his career from his first time on stage to national success. Morgan contemplates the pros and cons of fame and reveals the inner workings of TV marketing requirements. Morgan discusses the surprising engine of his creative process, how to make art from pain and socio-political strife, and why his spiritual awakenings disrupted his creative life. Morgan explains how the urge to serve the community replaced the need for artistic success, how his friends and fans reacted to his change of direction, and how an immersion into sacred mathematics birthed the creation of his Yinergy audio meditation program. So without further ado, Morgan O. Smith. Morgan O. Smith, welcome back to the podcast. Hey Steve, thanks for having me once again. Oh yes, great to have you back again. And today we're going to talk about creativity. In our last conversation in episode uh, 176, we covered your, if you want, spiritual life. Um, we, we talked about your upbringing and the various experiences you had, the various practices and methods you explored in great depth. And that was an absolutely fascinating episode. And okay. today, we, and we hinted at this actually in the last episode, your creative life, your creative career as a musician initially, stand-up comedian, and then host of the Gemini award-winning TV show, Buzz, for many years. Uh, after that, uh, your creativity did not finish, in fact, and it's still, you know, <laughs> still, exactly. It's a theme you've delved into great depth in the theory and practice of. Um, so this is what we're going to focus on today. Your creative life, your creative journey, mm-hmm. how your uh, spiritual or um, awakening explorations have played into that also. So perhaps we can start at the beginning. What's your earliest memory of this creative impulse? Gosh, my earliest memory of, of this creative impulse may have started with my fascination with rocks. That I remember. Yeah, I had a, a strong fascination with rocks. I would collect rocks. I, I was probably around, maybe I was, I was probably around five years old, maybe a little older, but probably around five years old where I, I noticed that the texture and the the design within rocks, I was so fat. You don't understand how fascinated I was with rocks. I don't even know where that went because I don't see it in the same way now. Um, but I used to collect rocks. I used to fascinate about about them. I used to dream about them. I used to try to draw them. I used to do everything that I could with rocks. So that was my first, uh, at least in terms of imagination, my fascination with nature. Uh, and then that went into insects. And um, I was fascinated if I saw any drawings of miniature people that were traveling. Um, they, they had this, there was a comic, there was a, there was a, a, ch- a children's book or magazine. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a magazine that was uh, circulating throughout the school board at the time. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was, a, it was a, the adventures of these kids that were, they had the ability to shrink. And they would hang out with ants and all that type of stuff. And that just blew my mind. I was just like, if I had the ability to shrink myself down and hang out with ants and spiders and all that type of stuff, and just running through, um, just having just having the experience of experiencing um, of experiencing um, plantation at that level, uh, I found that to be very fascinating. 
at some point I broke out of that, but for, for quite some time, that's what I was really, really into during those times. But it was, it was when um, my real first fascination, well, creative impulse came, I knew that I had the strong um, desire to play guitar. That was my thing. I really, really wanted to play guitar. I really wanted to have my own guitar. And I would bother my mom because my father played guitar. So I would bother my mom every day uh, for this guitar. Every day I'd bother her for probably for probably for a year or two. <laughs> I just always kept bothering her about, can you please get me a guitar, get me a guitar. Finally, on my birthday, she got me a guitar. I, I think I did one strum and I put it aside. Never really touched it again. <laughs> Just one of those, it was one of those things. I did, when I was in church, I did have a short stint of trying to play bass guitar in church. I do remember that. Um, and you know, I had the basics of it, but I didn't have any training or anything like that. So I did, I did have a, 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 um, a, a touch with that. And then I went into keyboards playing, uh, trying to learn how to play uh, keyboards. Um, Cause my father did that too. My father played uh, guitar, he played keyboards, he played drums, he did everything. So I did, I did experiment with that. What turned me off from keyboards was uh, my father really wanted me to become an expert at it. And my dad's real strict and he's very, he has a military style of dealing with things. And it was really, it was very traumatizing at the time. So he would make me practice with keyboards every single day, every hour. When I came home from school, I had to practice every day for an hour for quite some time. And if I made mistakes, he was, he was, um, he was very critical or very, um, uh, verbally abusive in regards to um, my training, but it's not like he was training me how to do it. He was, he actually just threw me on the on the keyboard and expect me to learn how to do it on my own. Um, so some things I did find out on my own. I did learn on my own by doing with that method. But it was um, uh, it was it was um, terrifying coming home every day, knowing that I had to uh, play try to play keyboards for an hour. I think what made that stop is after a while uh, I had an interest in playing drums. And there was a guy at my church, uh, his name was uh, Everton. Uh, yeah, Everton, yeah, Everton. And um, he taught me how to play drums. And so I started doing that on a regular basis. So I guess after a while, my father says, oh, you know what? He is finding some form of um, uh, discipline in some area of playing instruments. So he left me alone to play drums and then I became really good at that. So I abandoned uh, a bass guitar, uh, keyboards and went to strictly with drums. And I did that for years, just playing drums. And I started playing drums in the church, things of that sort. Uh, but I also became a vocalist. And that happened because there was a guy, uh, when I was a kid, there was a guy, his name was Ricky Moody, if I have the name correct. And he was an excellent singer and he attracted the attention of all the girls in the church when he sang. And I got jealous and I said, you know what? I want that same kind of attention. So I started singing. And realized I had the the ability to sing. I had the actual talent to sing. I was better at that than I was at drums. So um, I started doing that on a regular basis. Started doing a lot of singing. I ended up um, uh, well. My my family had a, a singing group with me and my 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 sisters. My brother wasn't born yet at the time, so it was my myself and my sisters. We had a, a family singing group that we uh, used to sing at all the church conventions and things of that sort. Uh, I was in the church choir and we had a church um, young men's group that I was a part of, uh, which they made me feature in because of my voice. Uh, and I did, I did some solo projects too throughout the church and, you know, got the attention of, uh, you know, uh, they did really, really well for me in regards to attracting the attention that I was looking for. 
uh, but the other creative impulse came when um, uh, there was a guy in my school. I was probably in grade three at the time. There was a guy in my school, his name was Robert. And uh, he was the, the visual artist. And again, he was getting all the attention from all the people in the school about his visual art. And I got jealous. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna learn that too. So I started, uh, I started practicing how to draw. So I, start, I started off by tracing pictures. And then, you know, I had the, the, the memory to understand the, the measurements and the whatever of, uh, of how images worked. And I made it work for myself. And I started drawing to the point where I started to enter into uh, different exhibits and things of that sort when I was at that age. And um, I, I enjoyed doing it. I, I, after a while, drawing was my thing. I was also singing, but drawing was also my thing uh, to the point where I'd make my own uh, homemade comic books. I was fascinated with the Incredible Hulk. But what I would do, I'd make the Incredible Hulk black. So <laughs> he's called Incredible Hulk, but I would make him black and I would call him the Incredible Bulk. It was stupid, but that's what I did at the time. Then I made a whole comic book based on the Incredible Bulk. And I actually tried to sneak into a comic book store, hoping that someone would buy it. That's how crazy I was back in those days. So um, that, that was my, yeah, that's, where, that was, that's where my creative impulse uh, came, was through, uh, uh, of course, playing drums, uh, being a vocalist, and being a visual artist, yeah, so much more to that. But um, as time went on, uh, I kept I kept doing visual arts until about grade ten. Uh, there was a point there was a point in that time where I wanted to be a fashion designer because there was another guy, this guy named John, who was really really good at doing fashion art, and that caught my attention. So I started to to play around with that for a bit, and then that died off. And so by grade ten. Um, a teacher said that you know you're really really good at this. You should um you should really look at, into this, into your into your uh, into your education, especially when you get to post uh, secondary. This is something you should really take up. Um, but after a while, uh, I was dealing with certain things in in high school, dealing with fights and just dealing with all that type of stuff. Being bullied in school, I had to learn how to protect myself. And after a while, the whole art thing just kind of faded away because I was so distracted by all the other things that were happening in high school. So. That kind of um, robbed me from that. Um, uh, uh, from that, but it didn't rob me from singing. I I, I kept doing that throughout the years. Um, in regards to singing, though, if I go back to grade seven, grade seven, I also I also participated in uh, the school choir, boys uh, choral ensemble. Um, I would I I would uh, perform at uh, Christmas plays and things of that sort. So there was a friend there was a friend of mine, a, a schoolmate. His name was uh, Leslie Leslie Burke. Uh, he's actually a very he's actually a very established um, um, uh, performer right now. Uh, he he's performed in um, in theater in theater such as um, The Little Mermaid and things of that sort. Like he's well established, um, did really really well for himself. He goes under the name right now. Goes under the name Aiden Church. Um, he's apparently on the TV show right now. If they if they've been renewed for another season, so that's what he's been doing. He just uh his um his uh he and his uh partner just gave birth to a, a beautiful baby girl and i just happened to know his partner because his partner used to be my boss so it was just it was all this small world so that's leslie burke but he was very inspirational to me because he's the one that actually really really want me to really pursue music so because he was a talented uh, uh vocalist himself um we got together and we started to do musical plays uh so we, it was like this and that's where he gets it from. So he, he took, put together this musical play. Um, I would learn my parts. I would learn my singing parts. 
we would get together, we perform these things in front of the school and it, it drew a, a huge att attraction, especially with the girls at the time. Um, that, that, that really appealed to me, uh, especially during that time. Unfortunately, uh, he was so talented that he, um, he, uh, he um, auditioned for the School of the Arts and he got in. So he left our school, he left our school and he went to pursue that. So that's where he went to the School of the Arts uh, honed his talents, and that's where he, I guess, eventually he went into, he did some um, musical recordings, and then he went into um, doing um, uh, musicals and things of that sort, so, and, and and all that, so, but he was, he was very inspiring to me, because back in those days, that's when I wanted to learn how to songwrite, I wanted to learn how to songwrite and compose music and things of that sort, so I got into that, and I got into that very heavily, so around grade seven, I started writing songs, but at the time I was writing gospel songs, and, uh, but there were gospel songs more on the contem contemporary um persuasion and then after a while i made the switch from from doing gospel music to full r&b types and uh, type of music and i did that all the way up till gosh i did that all the way up till i was 21 years old yeah, until i was 21 years old but during that time i i got really into the hip-hop scene and i wanted to learn how to rap so i started doing that so i would combine i'm probably one of the first people to combine um rapping with singing because back in those days that wasn't cool you had to do one or the other but i wanted to do both right i was better as a singer than i was a rapper but i was all right as a rapper i could get by so i i would make so i would go and uh do recordings do both and then i would uh i get two dancers that would uh be my backup dancers and we'd go out do talent shows and and things of that sort and it was it was great it was great for that time period um after a while uh i got a recording contract uh, with an independent label um and that's where i learned to hone my 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 uh, skills in music production so i was already good as a as a as a as, um, a songwriter and we had some stuff that were um that were released on compilation albums um people bought the rights to the music and played them on uh, I, i'd hear my stuff on um entertainment tonight on et so that was cool so at 18 years old just hearing that stuff just blew my mind to that, um, of the possibilities of what could happen when you're um, when you have your music published and, and all that that was really exciting to me at that time. Um, at 18 years old, I had my first um, major TV performance on a TV show um, that drew a lot of attention, and um, and I, I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. So I I, I honed my my craft in um, music production. Um, of course, still honing my craft as a as a singer, as a, as a songwriter slash composer. Did all that until everything went sour around the age when, when I was about 21 years old, everything kind of went sour. The deal that I was in was a terrible deal. Um, one thing led to another and uh, I had to leave all that. Well, I was frozen into the contract so there wasn't much I could do with music after that. So that's when I said, I need to try something else. So one day, it was a, it was a Sunday night. I was with my, um, hanging out with my roommate. We were watching some comedy show, a stand-up comedy show. And I was just kind of moved by how comics went up on stage and told jokes. And for some reason, I just felt that I could do that. I didn't realize how hard that would be, but I, for some reason, I felt that I could do that. So right away, I started, I took that, I, I grabbed a, a notebook and a pen and tried to start writing my first set of jokes. I don't even know, I can't even remember what they were at the time. Um, I started calling, and there's, there's a, a famous comedy club here in Canada, which is called Yuck Yucks. So um, Yuck Yucks is the most established uh, comedy club here and it had a change a chain of comedy clubs so that's the one that I knew because I heard about it so I called up to find out they had an amateur night they said they had one so 
I would call in week after week trying to get a spot and I couldn't get a spot. Like weeks went by, I couldn't get, the, I couldn't get a spot. Finally, I think by the fifth or sixth week, it could have been longer than that, but I think about the, the fifth or sixth week, I, I checked the list and my name was on the list, right? And at that point I came up with the name Mr. Mo because Mr. Mo actually came from, um, I used to call myself Emoja because I was also very um, deep into the Afrocentric um, uh, philosophies and, and the historian, uh, the, the, the historics of, um, of uh, black history and all that. So I came up with the name Emoja. So Moja in, Sw in Swahili means unity. So I just add the E in the beginning and called myself Emoja. As time went on, it was too Afrocentric for what I was trying to do. So I dropped the E and just called myself Moja. And then I called myself Mr. Moja. And then I cut out the Ja and just called myself Mr. Mo. And that's how that came about. I don't even know, I don't even know where that came from. So it, I became Mr. Mo. Uh, but Mista with M-I-S-T-A-M-O, not M-R-M-O. And that became my name because that was actually a spinoff. Jodeci, the R&B group Jodeci was my favorite R&B group at the time. And, and probably still is one, like my, my two favorite R&B groups of all time. So there was a, uh, a member in the group called Mr. Dalvin, M-R Dalvin. And so Mista was in, inspired by Mr. Mr. Dalvin. So I called myself Mr. Mo. And of course, Mo really comes from M-O from Morgan. And I started calling myself that. So I signed up. Uh, five weeks later or six weeks later, I got a spot, did my first spot at Yuck Yucks. Um, it was terrible, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was enough for me to say I should do this again because I was pleased with what I did because I was just the fact that I was comfortable to, to go up on stage and speak because throughout the years I was a singer. I did a lot of singing in front of, uh, in front of the audience, but I never really spoke. So Except for if I was doing stuff at church, where because uh, I, I had uh, there was a point where I had to do, uh, I had to do um, I had to teach Sunday school just to fill in for Sunday school teachers. So I did that in that capacity, but I never actually did any public speaking outside of what I did with Leslie and and all that stuff with with all that. So um, I felt pleased at the fact that I was able to open up and speak on stage for five minutes. Um, after that, I didn't get a call back again for probably like another. Could have been another five weeks. And then I got back on. I got back on. But at this, at this point, they changed locations. They shut down um, one of the, the locations. And uh, they had us, um, they, they were holding amateur night at this other location at Young and Eglinton in, in downtown, in um, uptown of Toronto. So I got on for the second time. I performed. I did, a, I did a decent job. I did good enough where they asked me to come back the second week. I come back the second week. And guess who walks in? Howie Mandel. So Howie, Howie Mandel walks in. He says, hey, I want, to do, I want to do some time. So he goes up on stage now, does like 40 minutes. And guess who had to follow him? I did. <laughs> so I'm following Howie Mandel. And that was my third time ever doing stand-up. Um, but that was enough for me to say, you know what? I want to do this. This is what I want to pursue. And so I performed after Howie Mandel. I did, a, I did an all right job, you know? And, um, and then I didn't get back on for a while. And then uh, um, throughout the, the two-year period, on amateur night, struggled trying to get on uh, this amateur night thing. Uh, I went out and um, started doing other shows in other places, learning how to hold my craft because stand-up comedy is very difficult, uh, especially in the beginning stages. So I went uh, around around the city, uh, trying to open up for other people, um, working out five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, eventually 25 minutes, um, met other comedians along the way, um, still trying to hold my craft. And at some points when I bumped into Russell Peters, because Russell Peters was a Yuck Yucks comic at the time, we became friends. So he, after a while, 
he would uh, bring me on on the road and I would open up for him for 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 a length of time and and all that. So that's where that all started, where I started to get more time. I got to know some of the other professional comics. And then um, and then eventually uh, that changed until the point where the show started, Buzz started. But Buzz at the time, like the tips that you showed in um, our first episode, uh, was when we were doing um, access uh, community access. So our first three years, we're doing community access um, prior to getting on the on, on the bigger stage where uh, we went national. So during those times, I was still an amateur comic. So um, I was I was getting popular with that show, and then eventually, um, what happened was I was doing a showcase, and uh, Dave Chappelle pops in. Dave Chappelle walks in. He was uh, I think he was filming a movie in Toronto. He pops in. He does some time. He see he saw me perform and. Uh, he asked me about. He asked me if I was um, if I was working, and I said no, I wasn't working. I'm I'm an amateur, and uh, he went and spoke to the. He went and spoke to management. Says, "Yo, you guys should uh, you should promote this guy," and uh, they did. So I thank you, Dave Chappelle. <laughs> so I got promoted, and I became a pro, a professional comic, and then from there, I I, I started doing um, uh, some of the. Well, there were there were other, even prior to that, I was doing professional work at other comedy clubs. But the, the thing with Yak Yaks, you were considered a pro unless you were promoted at Yak Yaks. So I didn't consider myself one until Yak Yaks made that official um, uh, recommendation or the, the official appro approval that, um, that I was a, a professional. So from that point on, uh, still I'm still doing the show. And, um, and then that became a struggle, just trying to get work as a professional. Um, but that's, that, you know, that can go on for days. But um, things worked out eventually and all that. But that's where that stuff came out of uh came uh that's where that stuff came out of but i was still at some point still recording music just for fun uh we recorded some music uh we had a group uh, i had a group for a short period of time called cold december and um uh we would do some recordings we were able to get some money from the government to do some other recordings which they you know so they gave us some money we did some other recordings and um, yeah, and uh, we had some stuff that was played on the radio. Nothing major, just a, you know enough for me to say, I, I know I want to uh, continue this creative path. Right now, I know I want to do stand up, um, but I still kind of pursued it for a bit, and, and, and all that. Yeah, um, and then that goes on until into the show gets picked up by the Comedy Network, which is a um, uh, a nationwide um, uh, uh, network. So we got picked up by the Comedy Network, and this is myself and my my co-host Darren Jones. Uh, uh, Darren Jones. So it was the two of us, and um, we got picked up. And I'm, I, I'm not because you're in. Where are you in the UK, right? Yeah. Um, have you heard of? Uh, she's really big here. But have you ever heard of Sarah Polly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So okay, I'm not sure. Like outside of how big some of these people are, because she's a Canadian um, sensation. But um, she's the the reason why we got picked up onto the into the onto um, the nationwide network because uh, one time she was doing an interview. And they asked her, um, what's your favorite show? And she said, my favorite shows um, are Tom Green and Buzz, mm -hmm. right? So Tom Green, we're actually under the same production company at one point, but Tom Green went off to MTV and uh, MTR, which is the name of the production company, needed another show to fill in his slot. So they're watching that interview with Sarah Polly when she mentioned Tom Green and the Buzz. And so they said, who are the, what's Buzz? So they started doing their research and they found, they found us we had some meetings and, um, you know, did all that stuff and we made a deal and then they sold us over to the comedy network and that's how that came. So thank you, Sarah Polly, for that as well. So, yeah. So there were a lot of people in my corner, 
uh, especially back in those days, because when industry wasn't looking my way, there were there were other celebrities that were. So I, I give thanks to Dave Chappelle, Sarah Pauly, Russell Peters, uh, and the list goes on. Kenny Robinson, and the list goes on. Uh, Ronnie Edwards, I can't forget Ronnie Edwards as well, and the group of other people that were looking out for me when other people when other people wouldn't. So yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So I'm curious, and you mentioned that stand-up comedy is difficult. It was difficult. Um, it's difficult to get going in the early stages. So could you talk a little bit about what it takes to get that going? What are what are the the lessons that the stand-up comedian needs to learn that you need you needed to learn in those early stages? And what kind of hmm. material did you end up end up developing? What was your Yes, in those days, your style, your signature, your signature material. Yeah, that's interesting because um, in the beginning stages, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I just knew that I wanted to be funny because, again, I've always run into someone in my school or someone in my social circle who had a certain talent or skill that I was envious of. So there was a guy, I think it was Gary. I think it was a guy named Gary, if, if I have his name right. Um, and he was the funny guy. And I was like, man, I wish I could be funny. That type of thing, right? Uh, apparently, I found that, that I had it did have the ability. I was I was able. Like, my father is a humorous guy, and I and I had his his ability. I used to make my my family laugh and all that type of stuff. So I felt that I had something, and I realized that it's different uh, trying to to deliver a set of jokes in comparison to being uh, to having a funny personality. All right, so um, I learned some hard lessons, uh, but I'm glad there were there were professionals at the time that would take me aside and give me good advice. So people like um, um, uh, Mike Wilmot was one guy um, that gave me really, really good advice uh, because I was probably more character based, and he his his advice was um, try to be try to be your try to find yourself before trying to build a character, mm. something along those lines, and that stuck with me. So I dropped all that and tried to look deep in within myself to see what I can deliver as as Morgan or as Mister Mo, and see if I can come up with something that I could take and, and make humorous. Another piece of advice he gave me was um, shorten the amount of words that you're using in a set. There's words that you're using that you don't have to use. When you deliver a sentence, people know what you're saying. It's like if I gave example, like um, uh, trying to think, what would be an example? Um, I went to the mall to get some milk. I went to the mall to get some milk. No, that doesn't do it. Oh, you know, let's go with that. I went to the mall to get some milk. I can shorten that just by saying, went to the mall to get some milk. Right, so if I'm on stage and I'm, and everybody already knows that I'm talking about stuff that I'm doing, I don't necessarily have to say the word I. I can say went to the mall to get some milk. That way, you punch it up a little more, and you can get to your punchline faster, right? Just by getting getting rid of all the extra words that aren't needed. So that little tiny thing was very very helpful. Just that little thing alone that no other comic ever told me, but he took me aside and said, you know, just cut down on those little tiny words that you're using. You don't need them. People understand what you're saying. That was enough, and it also helps too if people are drinking. People are, a little, people are a little tipsy. They don't have the, 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 the mental capacity to handle all that stuff. So you try to take it and summarize it as much as possible and deliver and get to your punches as, as, as fast as you can. Not as fast as you can, but within reasonable time. So things like that. So we did have workshops that happened every Monday because we had our amateur nights on Mondays. And uh, there, was a, there was a number of people that were running that. But um, there was a guy named Ron Vaudry. He used to run those sessions. And he gave, you know what? He gave a lot of great advice. Um, difficult guy, difficult guy to deal with. But in regards to giving advice, he gave great advice. So we would come there every Monday, and we'd sit uh, in the in a workshop for about an hour. And he gave us uh, some really, really good advice in terms of 
um, learning how to be vulnerable, learning how to uh, be more self-expressive, learning how to tell the truth, because comedy is based on truth. Um, what you do with it can be based in in fantasy or based on the imagination. But when you're uh, uh, delivering a setup, it should be based on truth and all that stuff. So he helped us with a lot of those things. So a lot of, a lot of that, um, a lot of a lot of the advice at the time, especially from Ron Vautry. So you know what? Thank you, Ron Vautry. He was a guy I didn't like too much back in the day. But now that I'm older and I look back, he did have his good qualities. So I have to say thank you to that. So but yeah, so it's like things like that. Um, but there's a bunch of other things. I also would take out books. I would go to the library and take out books on stand-up comedy writing and, and learn how to write and, and all that. But also took out books and learning how to write scripts, how to write um, comedy skits and things of that sort. So I was doing all that before Buzz even came about. So I was always in the library. I was always trying to hone my craft. I was always writing. Like I really put in my thousands and thousands of hours in just trying to learn how that, that, process, um, that process happened. And I gained a lot from doing that because there was a time period with other comics that were amateurs at the time saying, why are you doing all this stuff? You don't have to do all that. For me, I felt that I had to. And I'm glad I did because not only did I learn how to do stand-up, it also gave me the idea that a lot of these techniques that are happening in stand-up that I learned in stand-up also applies to metaphysics and all that stuff that nobody in my circle ever even figured out or even cared about. So it helped me in, in that regard as well. So I re I'm really glad that glad for whatever reason that motivated me to be in the library every day because this is before the days of the internet. So well, in those days, the internet was just a new thing. Um, so I was I was in the library at least every week, twice a week, every week for for years, just trying to learn everything. But um, and also I was also good at because of my creativity, I was good at drawing other material to see if it would help me in stand up as well. So I would pull books on uh, on um on um not just things not just comedy i would be pulling books on philosophy and pulling books on psychology and pulling and and, and finding books on, on so many different other uh fields and i would apply certain things from those fields into what i was doing as a comic that's very interesting indeed you had the advice there to find yourself before you tried to build a character or or, or take it another in another direction what did you begin to discover when you looked, as you put it, deep inside of yourself and began to find that? What, what, what did you find there? And what was the truth that you began to express in your comedy right when you started to find, find your, your own voice? Well, first, I should say, because I didn't answer one of your questions, um, I should say before I get into this, because I think it ties in, um, I, came, I became a very blue comic. Um, very, I became a very dirty comic. Uh, but back in those days, I was very, I was very, um, uh, it was very corny. Um, there was dirt in there, but it was very corny. And I wanted to get away from that because I would, I would uh, incorporate my singing into that. So I, I would, I would take uh, uh, songs and turn them into parodies and things of that sort. And those would get my biggest laugh. So I kept doing a series of those. And after a while, I was like, what am I doing? I don't, why am I doing musical parodies? I don't want to do musical par parodies in my comedy. So eventually I stopped doing that. But that was people would come up to see me for those parodies because mm. uh, I got really, really good at that because I already had the singing background. I already knew how to write songs. All I had to do is take the songs and make them funny. So that, that taught me, that alone taught me a lot about comedy in, in regards to like, you know, making punchlines and things of that sort. Um, but as time went on, because Ron Vultry said to dig deeper, look into yourself and be authentic of who you are as a person, I realized how, how dark I was mm. and how, how much pain I was going through and how angry I was. Because these are things that I was ignoring before, right? So I was ignoring the anger. I was, I was ignoring, I was disowning um, repressed 
memories. I was disowning um, the way I felt about certain things, whether it was in society, if it was racism, if it was uh, things, social aspects that I didn't agree with, or things that I just wanted, that I was questioning. Um, all those things started to come to the surface and it was disturbing. Um, and the only way I could deal with it is take the information and try to turn it into material. So the material at some point got darker, um, but I was still, I was still like, you know, a blue comic, but things got darker within the material. And then after, as time went on, there was a time period, there was a time period, Russell, hanging out with Russell Peters, um, by the way, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, but he can be a bit of a bully sometimes. So <laughs> if he's watching this, I don't know if he doesn't get upset, but um, he can be a bit of a bully sometimes. So back when I was in, back in the earlier days, especially when I was an amateur, and even when I went to, um, crossed over into the pro, in the, in, into um, the pro area, he would always embarrass me in front of people, especially in front of women. And if you know me, you can embarrass me in front of guys, but do not embarrass me in front of other women. Don't do that. No, don't embarrass me in front of other women. Right. But he would do that because he knew it would get under my nerves. Right. He would, so um, one time we went up for dinner and uh, he, he, he brought out, we were with his friends. We had some other comics and he brought us some beautiful women, like some, some beautiful girls came up with us. And he decided to, to pick on me at the table. And I was so embarrassed that he did this. And I actually quit comedy for two months because of, because of that, because I was so embarrassed. Right. So I quit, I quit comedy for that time period because I was so mad at Russell for doing that. So I went back. And this is back in the day before you even had DVDs and even before live streaming. Uh, I, I went to the to the the, the video store, um, the, the corner uh, video store by my house, where my mom's house. Where I, I went back to that. At some point, I went back home. I went back and lived with my mom. My mom was already divorced from my dad. My mom was on her own, and I lived with her for two years. So during that time period, I went to the to the video store and rented every video I could find on racism. This is this is my yeah. I went I went and rented the whole series of Roots. Um, I rented, what else did I rent? Every slavery movie I could find, I rented those. Um, I went and got the, um, a lot of black oriented movies such as, uh, it was a movie that was one of my favorite movies of all time. Still one of my favorite movies of all time. It's called um, Get on the Bus by Spike Lee. Um, that movie touched my soul. So I, I, I would watch that movie over and over again. There was another movie called, um, what was it called? I don't know, I can't remember what it's called at the moment. But it was a movie uh, directed by Denzel Washington. I think it was his first movie that he directed. What was that called again? That movie touched me because there was things about that character that I could relate to, um, the, the, um, the lead character that was in that movie. Ah, what was it called? Um, but it was another movie at that time that touched me. So I went and, I, I went out and, and rented all those movies. And then I went and uh, rented out Chris Rock, um, uh, 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 Bring the Pain. Um, and then I went and rented out Martin Lawrence's first comedy special and Eddie Murphy, Delirious, um, Raw. And I must've watched those movies like a hundred times. And then I went and watched the whole Def Jam series, <laughs> just everything. And I went and just, oh, and also I went and back. I also used to, I had a very um, fascination with white comics as well. So I would go and rent, um, I went, went and rented out uh, Sam Kinison's old stuff, uh, Bill Hicks um, and someone else, someone I'm missing. Uh, there's another comic that I'm missing, but also the works of Paul Mooney, uh, the works of Paul Mooney, because I was dealing with the anger. So I went that and got rid of my old act and came up with a whole new act where I wanted to be more uh, socially conscious, uh, from at least from my standpoint. 
Um, so I went and changed everything. I became more, I did more social commentary, but with my own twist, with my dark twist to it. So it was an influence. It was a, a great influence from Chris Rock, though, that I must say. And that's what I went with. So I, after two months, after being mad at Russell, I came back with a whole new approach. And uh, I stuck with that approach. It didn't always make people happy because sometimes I'd be in audiences, depending on small, especially if I was in small towns. And there were times where people really got, got upset. And there was times where people actually physically attacked me. Um, but overall, that's what started to build my name. Uh, and then I tried to incorporate that into the show because the first three years of the show, I was really disappointed with uh, the direction only because it was kind of corny. And I didn't want to, I, I, that messed with my identity, especially the way I wanted to be in comedy clubs. So when we got picked up by the Comedy Network, I slowly start, started to incorporate what I actually wanted to do on television as opposed to what we were doing for the first three years when we were on uh, Rogers Cable. So yeah, that stuff kind of, that's what came out of that. I think I, did I answer your question? I'm not even sure. That probably answered your first question. You did, yeah, you did. Okay, okay. Yeah, can you say a little more about incorporating the darkness, once darkness, when you dug deeper and you started to find this, this collection of anger, of uh, pain and darkness and so on, what's the effect of incorporating that? Uh, was, does that purge the, the pain and the anger? Does it heighten it? Does it have an effect on you when you bring your... Hmm. Uh, what's inside of you in line with your act and those start to come together. Does that have an, an unintended or unexpected effect in, in your personal life, uh, either for, for good or bad? Can you say a little something about that alchemy of taking the darkness into your creative process? To be honest, that made me happy. Oh, that was a relief. Just, just getting that stuff out of my system. Um, what I did find out though, that I myself wasn't much of a good person, at least on some level, like, if, if, if you talk to people who knew me on the surface, they'd probably say that I'm a cool guy, that I'm a nice guy. Um, if you talk to any of my fans, fans will always know, fans always know that anyone who greeted me, who came up to me, I treated every single one of them with respect. Um, I, always, I always made sure to do that. Um, but some people who watched the show um, may have thought differently uh, outside of the fan group. The fan group was a strong cult following, uh, no question about that. Uh, but probably some people outside of that may have questioned that. So there were people who I came across um, who already didn't like me uh, prior, prior, prior to meeting me. After they met me, they would say, oh, you know what? You're a cool guy. What is all that stuff that you do on TV? And I was like, that's just a character I do, right? But um, so when they got the balance of the, the other aspects of who I am, they realized, oh, he's actually a cool guy. Um, so I would say that was some of the outcome of that. Um, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate though, when I did certain things that were taboo, that put people put uh, my stuff in the category of of, um, of uh, put my stuff in the category of uh, of hate material, because I never felt that anything I did came out of hate. I felt the last stuff I did came out of um, either something that was actually true and I took it and then probably added a twist to it, um, or it was things that people don't usually talk about. Um, but anytime it was put into the category of hate, that used, used to really get me upset because I'm like, my comedy is not based on hate. Um, so, but I can't control how people think. I can't control how people interpret things, right? But I think for the most part, I think most people got it, uh, which was really cool. But um, anything that was disturbing, because um, I guess that the part of me that it probably wasn't the best part of me is uh, I'm really, I'm really stimulated by negative things. Like, even now, like if you, if certain things come up, my eyes light up. It's like, I need to hear more about it. So there's something about me when it comes to that stuff. So back in those days, um, 
anything that came, if there was any kind of social um, uh, uh, controversy that was happening at the time, I'd find a way to take a spit and spin it and see if I can take it and, and make it not always funny, but if I can take it and make it um, amusing, especially for a show. So um, an example of that was um, back in those days, there was this whole um, controversy in regards to Black History Month. Uh, people were saying, what's the point of Black History Month? Huckles, um, white people were saying, Huckles, we can't have our month. So I said, you know what? I'm going to give you one. <laughs> so we created, we created a whole segment where we uh, created a whole white history month dedicated to white people. And that was, to me, that was like, oh, that, that made me feel, I love, I just love doing uh, things like that. Um, it got so dark where I actually, I did a character, it was a Ku Klux Klan character. And um, I always thought it was hilarious. And um, I didn't realize how much it would disturb people because um, we, I came up with this character and the, the purpose of the character is, it's not a, a character that hates people of color. It's a character who hates things that are colorful. So this character was called the Ku Klux Clown and he had a problem with like, um, he had a problem with like color TV. Um, <laughs> he had a problem with <laughs> like things of that nature, right? So he had a problem with um, um, uh, chocolate ice cream and things of like that. So it was really, really silly. So if you see the costume, it's a, it's a clan outfit, but it had polka dots on it to establish that it was a clown. And he had clown makeup and he had a, a clown bow tie and he had big shoes and nothing to take seriously, right? So, um, but the guy beside me, which was, was one of our assistants, he was dressed up in a full clan outfit. Like, the thing is, I really, disturbed. when I think about it now, when I got my producer to make, to get the outfit made, she did it with no problem, no hesitation. I'm like, <laughs> when I think back to it now, I'm like, she didn't even, she didn't even hesitate. She wouldn't got it made. I'm not even sure she had it made. I think she just pulled it out of her closet. I don't know how she got it made too quickly. <laughs> but. Some, somehow we had a full clan outfit made that I made this guy Chris wear. And so um, we needed an occasion to shoot this thing. And the way I was thinking at the time, I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but at the time we needed a location. So um, we went to um, CTV, which is the, the broadcast um, that Comedy Network was under. So they got us the space. So we came dressed up in costume and people were freaking out when they saw the Klansmen. Uh, well, Chris dressed up as a Klansman. And to me, it was just like funny. But to everybody else, it's like, oh my gosh, what? Yeah, it, it was crazy. It caused a lot of a, uh, it caused a lot of stir that day at, at the studio, at the at the at the network. Um, I look back and I laugh my head off. But what was I thinking? <laughs> so, I love doing this character so much that I said, "That's how dark I am." I said, "Let's do a segment where we do a, a clan rally in 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 the the city of Hamilton." So we got a, we got our crew together. We got a bunch of people to join us. We got signs made, and and keep in mind the signs are saying like, um, "We hate color TVs. We hate like things like that. Nothing to do with race. Nothing at all, right?" So we got all this stuff made. We went down to Hamilton and we set up our, out, our outdoor uh, clan meeting or clan rally, and uh, we got chased out of Hamilton so quickly <laughs> by the residents of the town that I was actually happy that they took offense to it. But I'm like, they didn't read any of the signs. They didn't understand what was going on, but. Yeah, we got chased out of that city very quickly. And I had, I had a lot of fun back in those days because I was able to take all these dark ideas, take them and twist them. And it was my way of dealing with racism and dealing with all this other stuff by taking these things and trying to find a funny twist to it that uh, I guess a lot of people couldn't do, especially uh, white comics couldn't do, but I had the freedom to do it. So I would, I would do these things. But I remember running, having to pull off my mask and saying, hey, no guys, I'm black. 
So, um, but that was that was an interesting time. But it it was that episode that um, that segment aired that won us the Gemini, <laughs> the Gemini Awards. So, I have to question that too. But, <laughs> but that, yeah, that's what came out of that. So a lot of great things came out of it. Like, I got nominated again uh, sometime later for favorite comic in Canada, um, and I was only beaten up by the the Trailer Park Boys. So there was a Trailer Park Boys. There's three guys, of course. Um, um, what was his name? Bubbles. Bubbles. Um, he was the, the the one of the characters. He won the Gemini for that for 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 a favorite comic in Canada. Uh, the runner-up was another Trailer Park Boy guy, and I came third. And after me, the the third Trailer Park Boy uh, Trailer Park Boy came fourth. So I beat out one out of the two. But yeah, so they won. He won the Gemini that year, and whatever. But I was just happy to be nominated for favorite comic in Canada, especially coming from a guy who was watching a TV show one day and said, hey, I want to do stand-up. So all these things that came out of it was just absolutely uh, incredible. We're nominated three times. Uh, we won one out of the three. And we won other awards and, and all that. A lot of great things came out of my darkness. Um, I'm, I'm still happy that I did it because I needed to get that stuff off my chest. The downside is the whole nation had to witness all of that. But um, I'm glad I got it off my chest because I, I really felt it helped me towards my search in, in regards to trying, trying to find my true self which I had no idea about at that time. So that mm -hmm. took some time to get to that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. You know, in, in the creative career, it's often said that there are certain thresholds or certain watershed moments uh, where you go from one category to another. You talked about going from amateur to pro, um, especially with Yak Yaks promoting you. That was really in a sense, the, the shift from amateur to pro. When you started um, with Buzz and that and that started to get more popular and eventually brought up by the Comedy Network, what changes to your life and also your motivation as a creative person were happening around mm. that time as you started to get more uh, more widespread notoriety, I presume, and more fame and uh, accolades, etc. And of course, yes, winning awards like 2001 Gemini Award for Best Writing at a Comedy or Variety Program. What changes were, were going on around that time? Gosh, I'll tell, I'll tell you this. I wasn't ready for Canadian fame. Yeah, that, that, that alone, that alone, like even till now, I won't even pursue it. Uh, because uh, I, I, I realized that I'm not that type of a person. Um, even, after, even after exploring and, and digging into spirituality, there have been time periods where people have offered to... Uh, to do interviews on in regards to what I was into now, but I didn't want to be seen or known by anyone. I didn't want to know, I didn't want anyone to know at that degree of what I was doing um, the whole time. So TV really scared me from pursuing anything bigger than that. So um, we did the best that we could on the Canadian level. You know, we had the number, we had the number uh, out of, um, in all time, uh, uh, sorry, through the, through the um, what was it again? We were number four of all time on the Comedy Network at that time period. So we're the number, yeah, the, the top four show of all time on the Comedy Network at that time. So uh, a lot of great things came out of it, um, I, but I wasn't ready for being stopped and known by everyone on the street. Um, again, I was, I was, I tried to be respectful as, as much as I could with people who stopped me um, and people who were rude. I just tried to ignore them, but that slowed down. By the time we got into the Comedy Network, a lot of that didn't happen that much. Um, that more happened more when we were on um, Community Access. But by the time we got on the Comedy Network, um, people were, especially people in my community, were a lot more respectful and, um, you know, uh, would tail me up and 
you know, tell me good work. And people, a lot of, I had to sign a lot of autographs. It didn't matter. And I'll gladly do it. It didn't matter where, if you saw me at McDonald's, whatever, I was there giving you an autograph, I'd, I'd do it. I'd take pictures every time I get, I even help people get loans just because um, someone said, oh, I know Mr. Mo. And they say, hey, if you bring him in, this happened one time. It, it may have been my producer. Um, he was trying to get a loan and he mentioned that he was the, the producer of the show Buzz. And the person says, the show Buzz, do you know Darren Jones and Mr. Mo? And he goes, yeah, that's the two people I work with. And she said, if you bring, if you bring them in, if, if you bring them in, I'll give you the loan. So he asked me if I'd come in to meet with her and give her uh, her son an autograph and 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 do a, a um, and take a photograph. And I agreed to do that. And I came in, did all that, and she gave him the loan. Hmm. You know, things like that were just pretty cool. Like to have these privileges I've never had before. Um, it opened a lot of doors, got me a lot of things. Um, but I couldn't handle. I couldn't handle. I remember. I remember the day my son was born, my firstborn, uh, uh, Tavon. He's actually Morgan Jr., but I call him by his middle name. And I remember when he was born and. Um, and at this point, we're like in the height of our career. And, uh, I remember he was just born and I remember going downstairs to use the washroom in the main lobby. And I went in the stall, used the, 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 the washroom, came out, washed my hands. And there was a guy that was there the whole time. And as soon as I finished washing my hands, ready to walk out, he goes, Hey, by the way, love your show. And I was like, <laughs> like things like that. And it happened all the time. And it's like, Oh, I just want to be, I just want to be alone. I just want to have my privacy. I don't want to be noticed everywhere I go, that type of stuff. So it kind of it kind of got to me. I'd never really expressed that to people outside. I never had outbursts with people and things like that outside of that. But um, it was something that if it came to taking this on an international level, um, as much as uh, our producers did try to do that, I was fine if it didn't happen. And luckily for me, that didn't happen. So um, we had a hard time trying to sell it outside of Canada. Uh, but um, uh, I'm actually glad that didn't happen because I really didn't want that life after just seeing it at the level that I was at. Now, Russell, on the other hand, Russell Peters loved that stuff. So he went, he pursued his thing, and he and look what he's done now. That like This guy has done some mind-blowing, uh, profound things on his own, uh, and, but he loves that stuff. And Russell's supposed to be doing that because that's what he loves. Me, on the other hand, uh, there's things that I like about it, of course, but um, the attention, if I was able to control the attention, um, maybe I would, but um, I can't really control that. So I, I'd, I'd lock myself up in the house all the time, to be honest with you as much as I could. There's times if I didn't have to work, if I wasn't doing any stand-up and wasn't doing any um, any shoots, I'm in my house locked up. Yeah, so yeah, because it really it really got to me. Um, uh, even one time, I remember my, my second son when he was uh, now in kindergarten and the school's just like down the street from where I was living. So I'd walk him over and there was a school, a high school beside it. And I remember a group of kids following me home. Um, and that was just, crazy to me so these guys followed me all the way to see what building i was going into everything the funny thing about that is years later when i left all that and i was now in the nonprofit, um this guy at this high school um comes up to me um yeah so i guess with the time they're following me they weren't in high school yet so by the time uh this guy was in high school probably like grade 11 grade 12 he comes up to me and he goes hey by any chance do you remember um back when uh by this intersection and whatever, and a group of kids used to follow you. And I'm like, yeah, I do remember that. He was like, I was one of them. <laughs> so that was that was interesting. I had a good laugh. That was pretty cool. And he turned out to be a cool guy and, and all that. So like, you know, great things did come out of stuff like that. And I've met a number of other people who have either tried to stalk me or follow me. I, I, I met them years later and we became friends. So that, that was interesting too. So that's happened in a, number, in a number of ways. And co-workers who are a little younger than me, 
who also were fans and all that. And there's people I've worked with who've never said anything to me until the day they were leaving. I said, oh, by the way, I, I used to watch your show. I'm like, I just, I worked with you for five years. You've never mentioned anything, all right? So that happens all the time, still happens, so. Fascinating. And perhaps we ought to say something about your collaboration with Darren Jones on Buzz. How did that work, the, the collaboration between the two of you, co-creation of, of Buzz? If you spoke to him, his story is probably gonna be a lot different because the last conversation I had about this, his story is totally different than my version of the story. But this is how the story actually goes. So I met Darren Jones in the comedy club at Yuck Yucks, his first time doing stand-up comedy. So he, he came, his first time did stand-up comedy. He did a great job doing his first time. He was invited back the next week. He came back the next week. Um, and I, I, if I remember correctly, the second show wasn't as good as his first show, at least the way he wanted. But yeah, I remember it was the second time ever doing stand-up, right? So he disappeared for like a good year. A year later, he comes back. Um, he does comedy again. You know, he's doing pretty good, doing pretty well. And he's doing this on a regular basis now. Because at the time when I met him, I think he was about 16 years old when I met him. So now he's 17 years old. He's coming, he comes back and he's doing um, regular uh, spots at, at, the, at the club. Um, sometime later, um, Buzz was actually, well, just to, to I, I need to mention this. Buzz is actually a ripoff of an old show, of an older show. It was called Street Beat. Um, but at their version of the show, they only did streeters. They went, they went down the street with a microphone, asking people silly questions and things of that sort. And that's where that show left. When we started Buzz, uh, which it wasn't my idea at all, it was the idea, because it was uh, based on um, street beat, um, there was a guy, a producer at, uh, at Rogers at the time, and uh, he, uh, um, Michael, which is, our, which is our producer, he wanted to bring back the show under a different name. And so the producer at that time approved it. So they needed a host or two hosts uh, to do the show. So they had a guy named Rodney Pentland, um, rest in peace. He passed away some years ago from a brain aneurysm, but um, he was also a stand-up comic and he had Rodney Pentland and myself in mind, but the producer didn't like Rodney Pentland. He was into me, but he wasn't into Rodney Pentland. So he says, no, let's keep Mo, but we need a second host. We didn't have a second host. So the first, we went out and shot our first episode and Mike kind of, uh, was acting as the second host in, in a sense. Um, so that so the first episode already aired. There was no Darren Jones at that point. Darren saw the episode on TV. He called me and he says, yo, how can I get on this show? I want to be a host on that show. I said, you know what? You actually probably be a good uh, host on this show. So I said, call up Mike, Mike, because I'm sure you have his number. Call him up and let's see, uh, see what he says. So I guess he called up Mike and Mike says, let's bring you out on a run on this coming Saturday. He came out the, the following Saturday, he was a hit, uh, and the show became the two of us. So we went back and re-edited the first episode, we put him in it. And that's how that went. That's not his version of the story. The version of the story is, I don't know, he showed up, he was a hit, and he, and he became a sensation. I don't know his, I was like, bro, I'm the one that told you to call him, but he, I don't think he remembers all that. So, but that, that's what happened. That's what happened, and that's how it came to be. It just happened that the two of us had good chemistry, and um, the show was a hit from that point on. You know, another aspect, and then we'll move on, I think, uh, from this. So, it's so interesting to, to discuss this. Another aspect, we talk about watershed moments, we talk about big changes, is lifestyle, changes in lifestyle. Particularly, oh, yeah. uh, I know that you've said that in the Rogers days, in terms of finances, you weren't paid. You know, it was a, a, a labor of love in that sense. But of course, later on, that changed. So yeah. um, what is what was your experience of 
those sorts of changes, the changing fortunes, if you like, of the creative life. Sometimes up, sometimes down, sometimes really up. So what could you say about that, that dimension of the creative life? See, the thing is, even when we were doing the show, the first three years where it was a labor of love, there was no payment. It was a volunteer thing. Um, and I was working at KFC at the time. So I'm here doing stand-up on the, on the side. I'm working at KFC part-time. And I did that for four years. And um, the hard part to that is I was famous working at KFC. So that was, the, that was the downside to that, right? So I'm working at KFC. It got to the point where KFC even asked me to do voiceovers for them, which I did. So uh, for years, they had me uh, do their voiceovers for their, um, for their telephone network, for the, for the telephone deliveries. And if you, were, if you ordered food, you'd hear my voice doing the announcement. So that was just pretty cool back in the day. They didn't pay me for it or anything, but um, they got that out of me, right? So, um, so, but it was rough, like just trying to trying to make ends meet. I had to move back in because it was a point where I was living with um, a friend and his mom and uh, they had to move out. So because they had to move out, I had to move out as well. I had no place to go. So I hit, I hit up my mom and said, hey, can I crash with you for a bit? And she was like, oh, okay, you know what? As long as you're willing to pay rent and whatever, you can come back. So I went and I stayed there for two years. Uh, as I was still doing the show and um, working at KFC and doing stand-up. So that all changed once, of course, once the comedy network picked up. And uh, the first year we got paid crappy money because that usually happens in your first year. And after that, we we're able to negotiate for more money. And of course, all those things changed. I was able to do uh, things that, you know, I wasn't able to do prior to that because I was always struggling financially because I've always put, I've always put my creative pursuits before finance. Um, there's, there's some benefit to that, but overall, it's really not the best way to go when you're trying to make a living. And now that, you know, my girlfriend is pregnant at this point and uh, we're having a baby boy, I needed things to change very quickly. And luckily, everything just happened at the right time in the, that moment when I needed it to. So it just everything just fell in my lap at that point. So the moment she said she was pregnant, everything just happened. Comedy Network picks up the show. Everything, everything happened. I was like, this is perfect. This is good. And that's what, that's what I did. And after when I was able to make enough, I said, hey, mom, you know what? I'm a father now. I'm getting my own place. I'm out of here. And I never looked back. And uh, that's what we did. We moved in together and we raised our son. And that's what we did. Uh, so it, it fixed uh, finance. It fixed everything in those areas because at that point, I wasn't even used to money or anything like that. So it helped. And not only was I making money off the show, uh, I was able to demand more money in stand-up comedy. And people hired me for other things. And there was a few TV commercials that took place, which paid really, really, really good money. And and all that. So all that financially changed, which helps. The downside to all that is um, we, you have to remember when you're a creative, it's a different ball game when you're doing TV, especially if it's being sponsored or if you're, especially if you're on a channel where they're delivering a, a, a series of commercials. Um, so the, the rule, the thing is, the, the, the saying is um, you're here to sell soap, right? Always keep that in mind. You're here to sell soap. So if you're doing something creative and the network says, we can't have it, you can't air that, there's a reason why they're saying we can't air it. But it, it, it's such a, it's such a, a hindrance to your, your creative, um, um, your creative uh, uh, impulses, right? So, or your creative expression. So that used to piss me off all the time where I'd make these segments, have them produced, and the network says we have to cut it. It used to really, really piss me off. Me, there is cases, though, where I'm glad now in my older age, I'm glad they did cut certain things. All right, because I would have made a lot of religious groups uh, very angry. Because at this point, 
I'm doing a lot of material about, uh, uh, you know, whatever against, uh, against uh, of course, I'm doing stuff about racism, but I'm also doing stuff about my take on how I felt about uh, religion. Because at this point, I'm anti-religious. I'm not that way anymore, but at that point, I am anti-religious. So I would write any joke that I can um, that would uh, address how I felt about other religions, mostly on Christianity. But as time went on, I did attack. Um, I don't want to say I tie. I, I like to say that I try to make light of it, but it depends on the on the perspective on how people look at certain jokes. But my heart was really anti-religious. Um, so in that case, I am glad now that there are certain segments that had to be cut based on um, uh, uh, some of the religious uh, anti-religious expressions that I made through certain episodes. Um, though I was still able to get away get away with a lot. Uh, especially in regards, in regards to Christianity, because my argument was that's my background, right? So I should allow I should be allowed to take a shot at that because that's my background. So they let me get away with those, but when it came to like with other groups, um, there were some episodes where they some segments where they 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 would make me cut. It was just hard to fill in those segments. But the rule is, you're here to sell soap, and that's something that all creatives should remember if they're doing TV. But that's the downside of it because now if you're doing TV, there are certain things you're just never going to be able to do. In, in regards to your creative expression. Sometimes that's a good thing. Other times it can be a, a hindrance to your, to your expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very fascinating indeed. After 12 years of doing stand-up and being involved in Buzz, you left the business. You, we talked a, a, quite a bit about that, this sense of looking for more. And... Um, You've said that you lost your motivation for entertaining at that time. So I'm cu curious from and took two years off, in fact, uh, and th then later on started to work in the, in the field of youth, youth work and youth outreach, which is what you're doing now. One of the things you're doing now. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about that time from a creative point of view. We talked about it, I think, from a spiritual point of view. Maybe they, they, they meet here. I, they I don't do know. meet. Yeah. yeah, they do well, meet. What, what, what's, what was going on at that point? And... Um, how did you go through that and how did you emerge from that? But it's, it's interesting because before we got the word that um, we had to have a meeting in regards to ending the show. So it was a, a mutual agreement that we we're all going to end the show because, you know, at this point we're running out of ideas. Um, we didn't know where another, we didn't know where to take the show. Darren, of course, has a whole different take on how to do humor. I have a whole different take. At this point, we've got to the point where it's, it was time to move on. Um, the Comedy Network did give me opportunities where I was able to develop other show ideas, which I did, um, and did that successfully. Uh, but at this point, I'm meditating. So I'm, I'm, I'm now meditating with Holosync at this point. So at this point, I'm probably about two years in with, with, uh, with meditating with, with Holosync. And as I was med meditating with Holosync every day, um, every time I, I went out into the world to, to do stand-up or to do uh, TV or any of those things, there was something that was different in, uh, in not in my approach, but in the way that I was, I was seeing the world and the way I was seeing the world that the anger was, 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 was diminishing. I didn't, I didn't feel that anymore. That was my, my motivation. That was the thing that got me to do all the things that I did, but that was changing. So I'm still doing standup. Um, and actually in standup, some abilities actually enhanced, especially while I was doing the meditation. Like I was able to like do some really, really good improv right on the spot which i wasn't able to do before but there was things that were just coming out of me i was able to do two hour and a half shows and and all of that it was just it was it was great from from that standpoint but as um, i was doing that things were changing um 
in the last season of the show, I, I noticed things were changing too and, re, and what type of material I was delivering. It wasn't that blatant, but it was things that I was changing and I was still trying to find, um, which I think I did successfully. But I say, I think I did successfully because I didn't watch the last two seasons of the show. So I actually have no idea how the stuff looks <laughs> for the last two years. But um, in terms of how I felt, I felt good with some of the stuff that I was delivering from a, a, a humorous, um, amusing standpoint. Um, but there was some things I was trying to sneak in there in terms of metaphysics. There was tiny things I was sneaking in there. Um, but I, you know, I didn't, it's not like I knew a lot about metaphysics at this point, but, at this, but I'm reading a lot of metaphysical material and, and all that. And I start to realize that um, even the creative process of writing jokes, of writing um, uh, humor was pretty much the same as um, the outlook of, of, of metaphysics. And at this time, I didn't know anything about non-duality. I've never had an actual spiritual experience at this point yet. Um, but I had, I, had some, I had some remarkable things that happened. So while I was still doing the show, if I remember right, as I'm, as I'm still doing the show, I believe in the last um, segment that we did, I talked about waking up drunk and all that. I did do that, right? So I talked about waking up drunk and waking up in states of bliss. These things were happening. I wouldn't necessarily call those spiritual experiences, though, but these things were happening. But one of the things that did happen, did I talk about lucid dreaming? Well, I think you're referring to is the anecdotes you shared last time about doing the holosync and you'd wake up, but you weren't drunk, but you'd wake up as if you were drunk yeah. in states of bliss. And you started to have very strange spiritual experiences, alter experiences, waking up in all kinds of uh, yeah. bizarre states, but you weren't actually yeah. drunk. You just were, it was as if you were drunk. Yeah, right? it was as if I was drunk, yeah. yeah. So during that time then, I had a, um, a three-day lucid dream episode. Where I, yeah, so this is the first time ever experiencing lucid dreams. So I'm still doing the show, still doing stand up, and I'm still doing the whole sync every day. And uh, I go to sleep, and I, I wake I wake up in the dream, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm on a battlefield, and I'm on a horse, and I have a sword in my hand, totally real. Like it felt like it was totally real. I have a sword in my hand, and coming towards me is a bunch of skeletons on horses, and they're and they're coming after me. So I charge at them and I take my sword and I'm slicing them in half. Ah, 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 ah. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is fucking incredible. What the hell is this? And uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm dreaming. And then I realize I'm dreaming the whole thing, but it was like real time. I can feel the sword in my hand. I can feel myself sitting on the horse. I can feel myself um, uh, cutting these, uh, slashing these, uh, these skeletons, everything. Totally real. Blew my mind. I wake up out of the sleep, out of, out of the dream. I'm like, holy shit, what was that, right? So the very next day, I go, I go to sleep. I'm in another dream. This time, um, I, was with, I was with some comics. I was with some stand-up comics. And they were, they were making fun of me, right? They were making fun of me. And I was like, oh, this is how you guys want to roll? This is how you guys want to roll? So I said, hands, come out of the ground and grab them and pull them back into the ground. So as I said that, these giant hands, monster hands, pulls out of, out of the ground, grabs them, and pulls them back into, into the ground. And they were gone. <laughs> and I, I was like, wow, I have the power to do this. This is absolutely incredible. And I'd walk around, and I'd be like, hand, pop out of the ground. Hand would come up, these giant hands, and they would just go back into the ground and, and things of that sort. The very next day, my third and last dream, I'm having an orgy with all these beautiful Black women. On, on, a, on a college, on a campus site. Mind blowing, I swear it was so real. 
all these women and I had this, the, the stamina of a stallion and I was able to do it with all these beautiful women. It was so, it was so mind blowing. I was like, it, it was trying to fulfill, uh, um, it was trying to fulfill a fantasy of mine um, uh, that I could never fulfill sexually in regards to gratification. And that was the moment where I was able to at least gratify myself in a way that I could never do possibly in real life. Um, but those were my three lucid dreams. They were so vivid and so real and so whatever. I always talk about these lucid dreams. At this point, I've never had a spiritual, quote unquote, spiritual experience at this point. Right. So these are the things that were happening as I was doing policy. So I'm having these experience and all that. And I'm walking into work, trying to shoot a segment of buzz and going on stage and doing stand up. And I'm just like, I, I've experienced something that's so beyond all this stuff. I, I just don't feel the same drive that I used to feel um, that I was that, that I felt doing stand up and, and doing all the other stuff. I never really had a passion for doing the TV stuff. I, I did it because, you know, it was a money making thing. Um, uh, and, you know, and I realized that I wasn't able to express my creativity to the fullest because my job is to sell soap. But in stand up, I can do whatever I want. Uh, but it would depend on the club owner if they would hire me or not. And there were times where club owners did fire me. Um, of course, I was rehired to finish the gig, but they did fire me based on um, their rules and regulations, based on their, based on their, um, the way how they want to run their venues. And I did run and have some run-ins um, at some colleges. I was invited to perform at, at a Christian college. I told them what I did and they still wanted me to perform. So I went and I performed and um, they gave me bad press. The person who hired me back down said I didn't know what he was going to do all of that. He threw me under the bus, even though he knew exactly what I was doing, what, what I did, and what I, and whatever. He threw me under the bus. And um, that was my experiences with doing that. But at least I was still able to have full creative control to do whatever I want within that. But I, did, I didn't have that same kind of power with TV. So I'm having these the experiences, as I, as I spoke about the last time, I'm having these lucid dreams. So when I'm going on stage, I didn't feel the same oomph that I once felt um, doing these things. And as I'm listening to, to um, Holosync, um, my moods are changing. I no longer feel that darkness that I was feeling um, uh, years prior. All that stuff started to lift because I was um, removing that stuff from the, the repressed, uh, uh, repressed information stuck in my unconscious mind. All that stuff was being lifted slowly um, and sometimes in some ways very harshly. Uh, but um, all these things were starting to be removed and I didn't feel that same kick uh, in, in doing stand-up as much anymore. So I was still doing it uh, here and there. Um, I, at this point, I'm turning down gigs. So I, my booker would call and I would just turn the gigs down and, and whatever. And as, as time went on, I just stopped, I just stopped doing it. Um, the last show I probably did was with um, my friend and colleague, Gavin Stevens, another, another great comic. Um, I think the last show I did was with him. Um, it was a tribute to Lenny Bruce. It was a show, yeah, a trip uh, that was a, a a tribute to Lenny Bruce and uh, I remember doing that show and that was it I was like you know what I think I'm done and after that my friend Jean-Paul was getting married and that was the last time I saw Russell Peters because Russell Peters was the best man at his wedding and that was it I after that I kind of like just cut all ties with most of the comics except for Gavin Gavin I kept uh, uh in contact with him because he eventually started doing the meditation too so um but everyone else I kind of just um, lost ties with I would run into Jean-Paul once in a while um, throughout the years, but Gavin was probably the only one that I that I that I stayed in contact with. But um, all that stuff started to change. Uh, it changed to the point where um, all I kept thinking about is working in nonprofit. I didn't know what nonprofit was. So what I did was I put together um, a, a project. I created a project where I would teach people creativity. 
So I put this project together and I contacted all these nonprofit organizations and say, I'm willing to come in just to teach your, your, your participants about creativity and how it works. And they'd let me come in. And um, I, would, I would do that for a while. So I was doing that. And then I was planning on moving. And uh, I, I wanted to move back to the neighborhood that I grew up in, which is the Malvern community. So I remember calling Russell. I called up Russell and said, yo, Russell, I'm thinking about moving back into my um, old community. And he was like, why would, you, why would you gain all this just to go back to it? Like, why would, why would you do something like that? I said, I don't know. I just feel the need that I need to go back into that community and possibly work in that community. It's like, all right. And I think that was, I think that was the last um, phone conversation I had with Russell. So this is back in, uh, what was that conversation? That conversation was back in, in um, I, think it was, I think it was 2005. 2004, 2005. Yeah, so way back then. Yeah, no, that was not, I couldn't remember my last conversation because at that point, um, Jean-Paul's wedding didn't happen yet. So it wasn't the last conversation I had with Russell, but probably the last telephone conversation I had with him. But um, that was that. So I had this urge to work in the community. So I'm doing these, uh, these creative, uh, this creative project of teaching people how to, um, how to tap into their creativity. And then one thing led to another um, where uh, um, an organization offered me a gig. So, sorry, I have to cough here. They offered, they offered me a gig and I, I looked at it and I, I said, you know what, I think I want to do this. So I jumped on that and I became a program facilitator. So as I became a program facilitator, I kept on teaching um, creativity, but then I created some other uh, workshops as well, like um, um, critical thinking, uh, problem solving skills and goal setting skills and things of that sort. And then I started to teach that with uh, grade seven and eights. And then eventually the high school kids and then led up to that, and then two years after that, two and a half years after that, ugh. and then um, a uh, uh, little time after that, I became a youth outreach worker, a provincial youth outreach worker, and um, that's when I started to do bigger things with um, everything I was doing. And then at that point, when I became a youth outreach worker, uh, that same year, that same year, two thousand and eight, I had the first awakening. So at this point, this was already about five years, five years of meditating with Halsing. That's very interesting indeed to hear you to hear you talk about how the meditation, as it worked on you on the inside, and worked on the very the very material that powered your creative, your creative output, the darkness, as you put it, started to work with that. That your creative output was, at least for a period of time, it seems began to become disrupted. That's very interesting indeed. You know, it's not the first time I've heard that. There's one other time I've heard that. I did a series of interviews with Henry Shookman. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you if you saw those, but he's a Zen teacher now. But before he was a Zen teacher, he was a poet and a writer of fiction. And he won many award, awards for that. He was in, internationally renowned for that activities who's successful as a creative person in that way before he before he became a teacher of zen and oh. and he, go back and watch those um watch those episodes okay yeah and it was very interesting because he actually lost the impetus to write as he started to get deeper into zen and he started to have experiences uh, you know awakening experiences uh, epiphanies insights etc and also the material inside of him started to get healed some some of the trauma and and some of the the darkness in him actually began yeah. to began to be integrated and healed he lost the impetus to write because that's what was powering his writing 
and he didn't he didn't write for many years and then later on he after some years he rediscovered his the, the creativity started coming again the urge yeah. to write started coming again but it, it, it was coming in a very different way yeah in a, a very different um power was behind it and it started to come out and then he wrote his very successful zen memoir one blade of grass um, well, i did see was, some of that mm -hmm. yeah one blade of grass yeah i did see some of that yeah. as you're telling it said no some of that sounds familiar to me i have to go back and rewatch them yeah interesting so you know i'm wondering uh, would you, did that distress you at all when you started to uh see your creative process being undermined or, or dis disrupted even though you were healing on the inside with a hollow sink did that disturb you or were you too involved in the spiritual journey and uh, uh, discovering things as you were there to notice that or to be disturbed by that and have you found i know the answer is yes because we discussed that last time your your creativity is is uh, on full blast now how did you rediscover that how did you uh, what's your creativity like now um, what was the journey in other words for, in terms of your creativity as you started to go through this particular process well i would say i would, I would say it didn't disturb me because on some level i knew what i wanted so it didn't disturb me and i liked the way i was feeling and i wanted to feel this way so it didn't disturb me on that level no but it did it did disturb other it did disturb other people hmm. yeah so i i People were very critical of the fact that I would leave the TV business and not pursue it any further and go into something that pays a lot less money. Um, that, that yeah, people were very critical. Uh, some people were supportive, of course, but um, some people were very critical or at least had to remind me, it's like, what, what are you doing? Are you serious? Maybe it's the meditation that's just fucking you up. Like, maybe she's let that go and really think about your priorities and get back into what you're doing. Like, you put in so many years into this and you're going to just give it all up? I thought about it, but I'm just like, I, but I, I just can't, I can't, I just can't get into it. And I have to have a burning uh, passion for something to do. I, I just have to feel that. I feel that way with work too. If I don't feel like burning passion, I, I just can't, it's hard for me to, 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 to pursue something. So I'm like, listen, I have to, I have to, I have to follow this thing through, right? I will, I'm going to do this meditation, even if it kills me, I need to follow this thing through because what's happening, which I can't explain at that, especially at that time, I need to, I need to see what this thing is. Because after having those lucid dreams and having those moments of bliss and all that, I'm like, what else could this thing to? Because at this point with Holosync, I'm probably only on level, I, I can't remember now because their their system, they have a, a program how the whole thing's set up, but I was probably on level four, level three, level three, level four at this point. I wanted to know what level 13 would, would be like, but you can't just jump to level 13. You have to go through the whole process. So I'm like, I have to see this thing through. Even if it ruins my career, whatever, I got to see this thing through. So I ignored what everyone said, including the, the mother of my, my, my children, because she was really pissed off. Like this really bothers her. I think it still bothers her now, but, um, but, um, I had to, I had to see this thing through. So I stuck with it. Um, I know the meditation bothered her at times. There would be times where she would, uh, try to disturb me or start vacuuming as I started meditating. It like it really bothered her to the point where, uh, she'd do anything to disrupt the process, but I continued with my practice and kept doing what I was doing. Uh, and I, now I, I can see her point of view because she was living, um, you know, financially, she was living in a, in a better, in a better, uh, in better circumstances. And then I gave it all up and, um, uh, I can see her point. Um, but I'm saying, you know, listen, and sometimes she still brings it up. Like she'll, she'll bring it up saying, Oh yeah, you could have been as big as Russell now, but you chose otherwise. I'm like, come on, you, you're bringing this up for the last, this is like 20 years ago. <laughs> 
right? So it still continues, but um, uh, but the the attacks are not as bad as they were like back in the day, because um, you know I am I am doing well financially, so um, you know it's, it's it's not that thing, but I think she liked the the status um, that came along with that too. So and um, and she has a group of friends uh, on Facebook, whatever, that always are asking about me because they're all fans. And they're always asking about me. And if there's ever a fight between us and she brings it with her friends, they take my side and say, yo, that's Mr. Mo. You need to, you, maybe you need to shape it up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thank them for that. I've never met them, um, but uh, they're hardcore fans. They're fans until they die. So, which is really cool. So even though I'm sure most of those cases, I was in the wrong, but um, uh, yeah, things like that would happen. So uh, it was, there was some um, attacks, um, but in, in regards to the fans, Fans did ask a lot of questions, but they still sent uh, fan mail. And I still get fan mail now from fans um, who still send me fan mail. And there's actually one fan who actually became a friend of mine because in my lowest of the low, because, oh, yeah, I should mention this, too. When the whole show thing ended and I decided I was taking the two years off before I went to nonprofit, a lot of the friends that I was talking to outside of my comedy friends, but a lot of the friends that I was talking to, people I met throughout the year, stopped talking to me. They all just cut me off. Not all of them. Like, Taro is still my friend. Um, uh, and, and a few other people, and Gavin, of course, but um, a girl named Sarah. Sarah, she was a fan, some girl who I never met um, at that time. Anyway, I never met her. She was this girl that um, always sent um, uh, messages, whether it was, uh, whether it was um, by letter, um, by email, uh, by telephone calls. She was always there. She was a fanatic. She, like, she was always there. Um, to the point where she started to contact me directly. So I would talk to her directly, never met this girl. And then um, time went on, she was having problems at home. And this is how I realized that I wanted to be a youth worker. So I would mentor her. I would give her advice of things that she, um, that she needed to do to help her through that. It got to the point where her parents started to call me. So anytime she ran away from home, they would call me to ask me where she was. And I'm like, listen, I have never met your daughter in person. I have no idea where she is. She's never told me where she is. Right. But at, at this point, their parents were involved. So I'm, I'm like in this whole family drama that was taking place. It was only after years later, I was having one of my experiences. It wasn't a spiritual experience, but it was a, a, a peak experience where her image came up. And I realized how much of a, of a friend she was to me, because after all the people that kind of left me, abandoned me, she was the one person that one of the people, at least when it comes to the hardcore fans, she was the only one that stuck by me didn't matter what it was. She always stuck by, always encouraged me. Till this day, even today, she left me a message saying, I'm going to be watching the podcast, uh, your interview today. I got you, Mo. Still there. I've only met her now three times, twice. I think I only met her twice. So years later now, years later, so I had this experience where I realized that this girl is my friend, right? So years later, so I said, gosh, I, I have to like pay more attention to this, to this individual. So now years later, um she hits me up she says hey because i believe she was living in peterborough and she probably still is and she said um i would I'd like to come meet you so this is back in 2015 so i'd like to come meet you so i said gosh i've never met sarah ever and now at this point she's a lot older now and she uh asked to meet me so i decided to meet her so i went down this was in 2015 i met her for the first time i met her at um at, in a restaurant and she got up and she said i just want to thank you for saving my life if it wasn't for you, I would have committed suicide. That touched me. Even as I'm saying it, I'm starting to like really, really feel it in my heart because um, when she said that, I, I said, this is, even though I was already in this field for years, 
already. That's when I said this is this is my path, at least career-wise. Um, that this is what I this is what I should be doing is helping people because I didn't know throughout that whole process that I was saving her from from herself. And uh, I was so happy when she we sat down. She bought me lunch. She said, "This is on me." She bought me lunch. Uh, we spent the day together, and then um, I didn't see her again for some time. And then um, a few years later, she called me and she said, hey, I have a gift for you. Can I bring it down? And I said, you're going to come all the way from Peter Road to, to bring this gift? She said, yes. So she uh, came down. She got lost somewhere. Uh, I had to help her to get to my, my work. She came down. She presented me with a gift of a painting that she painted. And she want, just wanted, she came all the way from Peter Road by bus to present me this gift to say, I just want to thank you once again for everything you've done for me as an entertainer, but also as a friend. And that girl will be my friend for the rest of my life. So like yeah. So that so just to just to answer the question, yeah, there were people that um, there was there was some critical attacks, and rightfully so because they they knew me for for a certain thing that I was no longer doing. Makes sense, but at the same time, I had other people who were very supportive, and they came and they followed my path wherever I was going. They were there with me. Uh, Sarah, she was there with me, um, and she's still there. And she's still there, and she's even done some of the meditation herself. Uh, to some to some degree um yeah so like yeah yeah so this is just a girl who was like one of the people in my fan base for three years and it came and turned into a into a, a wonderful friendship you know i'm curious about energy and how it was you came to create that if there's anything to say about the youth work um your your work as youth work the meaning you find there for sure we should discuss that but i'm I also, can tie, I, can also, I can tie that in yeah, right. I can easily tie that into energy. The energy is a big part of my work that I do too. So mm -hmm. even though I'm a youth worker, um, the good thing I like about my work that I was encouraged to bring whatever expertise I have to the table. So I brought energy in. First, it was Holosync because that was what I was using at the time, and and energy wasn't created yet. I, well, I was in the works of creating it, but I didn't understand the carrier frequency, the carrier frequencies, and things at that time. So there was things in the works. There were things in the works, but I I would sometimes give a copy of of um, Holosync. To some of my participants in the in the beginning stages, but how energy came about, um, it happened because after my first spiritual experience, it happened in two thousand and eight. So as I, I said the last time, um, I had the experience of Atman, I had the experience of Taria, um, the, the the realization that I was no longer or that I wasn't the body, that I wasn't Morgan, that Morgan was a character that I was playing, uh, and then it led to um, realizing that everything was a, a character that I was playing to some degree. At the time when I would say, oh my gosh, it's everything. As time went on and had bigger awakenings, uh, it wasn't close to everything. But at that time, um, I had that realization and, um, uh, and, and, and I always carried that. So that shift um, was a permanent shift. When that shift happened, that stayed, it never changed. It always stayed. And even as I speak, there's a, a witness that is watching this whole thing happen. I'm aware of that as this witness is speaking to you. So as I'm speaking to you, I'm kind of in on a neutral state while this witness is experiencing everything happening in action. It was weird. It's hard to talk, but, but that's what's that's what's happening even as we speak. And that happened from that moment in 2008. Never is never left. Um, but after that awakening, um, something about the number nine struck me. So I have another coworker, another good friend of mine. His name is Ricky Francis. Um, he helped me a lot too when he came to the metaphysics. Because when I came over to nonprofit, he was the only guy, one out of two guys that were into that kind of stuff. So um, Ricky, a very knowledgeable guy, um, and he introduced me to a lot of things. Like he introduced me to a chi master and all that stuff. So he he has his 
we have our own journey of the things that I've done with Ricky alone. So he used to have these, sometimes he'd come in and he will speak to the youth and he would always talk about the number nine and the significance of number nine. And something about what he said struck me. I said, there's something about the number nine, but I don't know what it is. What is it about the number nine? And I started hearing things from like, from Tesla in regards to three, six and nines and all that stuff. So I remember one time I was, um, and this is after my awakening. So um, all these things are changing in my mind. Um, as I said before, um, somehow I just became a, a vegetarian, never looked back. I just never had the desire for meat. So it's just like I never had the desire to perform again. I just never had the desire to eat meat. I didn't have the desire to do all these certain things. I just changed. I'm used to them now because the change happened so gradually that I didn't even notice until if someone asked me a question, they'd be like, oh gosh, yeah, yeah, that, that thing did change. Yeah, so some things are very gradual and there's other things that are very apparent. But um, the, the vegetarian thing was one of the things that was very apparent because if you know me as a person, there is no way in hell I would give up meat. There's just no way. Like I look back now, I was like, wow, I can't even believe I even made that kind of a change. But Ricky, again, um, you know, he would make these, uh, he would say these things about the number nine. And there was another guy named Victor. Um, he used to uh, sell me these videos. Some of them he would give for free and others he would sell to me. No, no, he always gave me videos for free. Another guy used to sell them to me, but uh, he'd give me these videos and some of the videos were metaphysical and I always loved the metaphysical videos. And they also mentioned something about the number nine and things of that sort. So that was like in my mind over and over again, the number nine, the number nine, the number nine. And then one day I'm holding a Rubik's cube. I'm holding the Rubik's cube and I said, gosh, the three, six and nines are right in this Rubik's cube. And I had to figure it out. So, okay, how many sides to each side? There's six, like one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, how many uh, cubes within whatever. I'm like, oh gosh, this works up to three, six, and nines. So I said, okay, there's something that's going on with three, six, and nines. What is it? What is it? It's three, six, nine, three, six, nine. There's something about it. So I started looking into some other stuff and I looked into sofeggio uh, tones. And sofeggio tones, they have like frequencies that are like three, 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 I don't know, three, six, nine, nine, six, three, uh, six, three, nine, and all these different frequencies. And they claim that they do these different things. Um, I, I would try them. I, I made my own sofeggio tones and I would try them. And I didn't see much difference, anything beyond what I was doing with Holosync. Um, but, I, you know, from time to time, I'd just keep doing them. And then one day I was listening to a podcast. I don't remember what podcast I was listening to. And they mentioned a guy named Marco Roden. So I was like, oh, Marco Roden, who's this guy? And so the, uh, he's, they said, he's this, this is a, a mathematician and he has his, um, this, this, uh, this theory that um, um, where the foundation is the number nine. And I'm like, whoa, let me look this guy up. So I look, this, I look up Marco Roden and I find this video on YouTube and it's called, uh, the video is called something like Vortex-Based Mathematics by Marco Roden. So I said, I have to watch this. So it's a four hour long video. So I watched this video and my mind was blown. I watched this video and I said, holy shit, you're trying to tell me that with these numbers, and it's broken down, it has this whole system, it's broken down to one, two, one, two, four, eight, seven, one, two, one, two, four, eight, seven, six, five. So one, two, four, eight, six, seven, huh, one, two, four, eight, seven, six, five is the algorithm. And that's a doubling circuit of one, double two, double one is two, double two is four, double four is eight, double four is, uh, double four is eight, double eight is 16, but one plus six gives you seven, so that's how you get your seven, and double 16 is 32. So three, three plus two gives you your five. You're breaking down the single digit numbers to get one, two, four, seven, five. And his claim was this happens throughout the entire universe. This happens through binary coding, happens through um, the, the wrapping of, a, of an electrical coil. Uh, it happens with the musical scale. And everything I checked out, he was right. 
um, everything. Even when I looked into the Fibonacci um, sequence, he was right. I was like, holy shit, this guy's, this guy's right. What the hell's going on here? He claimed that he got this information from reading the Baha'i faith, uh, the, the sacred book of, within the Baha'i faith, and all the sacred books. So the Bible, the Quran, um, the, the text, uh, the Hindu texts, um, all of that. And uh, he came to the conclusion that all the stuff was the same. So he created this thing. He did this thing when he was like 14 years old, and he created the basics of this map, of this map, which he called the symbol of enlightenment, also called the, the fingerprints of God. I was so fascinated by this thing. I watched this video, which took me a few days to do, because um, I was watching it during work. So anytime I had a break, I would watch segments of this video. And um, I kept watching this thing over and over and over again. I said, I have to learn this math. There's probably a way I can, I can incorporate this math into the binaural beats I was trying to create, because um, I was just I was learning how to create these binaural beats. I was already running these experiments. And um, but I couldn't find there was something that I, I, at this point I knew how to do carrier frequencies because that's the secret sauce to this type of um, this type of um, brainwave entrainment is the, is the lower carrier frequencies. So I learned how to do that through Holosync. Um, a guy from Centerport Research, Holosync, taught, uh, gave me information on how to go about that. So I figured that part out, but I couldn't go out and giving out a product that was exactly the same as Holosync. So I wanted something that was unique from, from what Holosync was doing, but I wanted to keep the idea of the, of the carrier frequencies. So, um, so I already knew how to do that. So I learned everything I could about uh, vortex-based mathematics, and I tried to over and over try to apply that to, to things that I was working on and things that I was doing to see if I could find a way to uh, incorporate that within sound. Because I had to learn sound physics too and understand how sound works, how sound affects the brain, how it affects the nervous system, all of that. Um, and, and, and all that stuff I had to learn. So uh, about a year or, or and, a, and a half, and at this point, I have something wrong here. Okay, because I didn't have my second awakening for the next two years. So the second awakening happened happened two years later. So that means during that time, by the time I figured out the math, so yeah, so by the time I figured out the math, two years have passed by, at least almost two years have passed by. Now at this point, two years have passed by and I had two, my second and my third spiritual awakening pretty much back to back, right? And then I had a series of peak experiences and then eventually more of these spiritual awakenings at higher levels and level of consciousness. So at this point, um, I'm here one day, I think it was a Saturday afternoon, and I'm working out, just like when I had the spiritual experience on Saturday afternoon. A lot of things happen on the Saturday afternoon for some strange reason. So I'm working out, pumping weights, I'm holding the bar, and of course you have the weights, the, the barbells on each side. So if you look in the mat, sorry, I'm not able to show, maybe at some, if you can, if you can put up um, an image of uh, the, the symbol of enlightenment, I can send it to you. It, just for a brief second, you can show what the map looks like. So there's a way to map all these numbers. And then when you take all the numbers, the sequences, which is 12 of them, and you take these numbers, which is the same numbers, just in different alterations. When you take these series of numbers and you place it to its side, I realized when I looked at it, okay, so yeah. So when you place them on the side, you realize that you can make binaural beats from that. So I'm here working out, I'm holding the barbell, the plates are on the, each side. And I said, oh gosh, all I gotta do is take the series of numbers and twist it to its side. If I divide them by two, um, I can find a binaural beat that represents each of these numbers. And that's what I did. So I went back to the drawing board. I found uh, a, a binary, a binaural, binaural. I don't want to mix up binary with binaural. So I found a binaural um, frequency for each of the numbers of one, two, four, seven, five, and the different variations of, of one, two, four, seven, five, which is the, the numbers on the left side of, of your headphone. All right. And then I had to find the series of numbers of the carrier frequency because the numbers on my left side are the onset frequencies. 
and then the numbers on my left are my are my um, carrier frequencies. And the numbers on the left has to be lower than the numbers on the right because to create a binary a binaural beat, it's the the difference of the two sounds. So if you have a a frequency of uh, of ten hertz, another frequency of um of I don't know eleven hertz, yeah, of eleven hertz, in the center of your brain you create a frequency of one hertz. All right, so one side has to be lower than the other side. And the lower the, the the ones on the one side on the my right side are the carrier frequencies. So I made the numbers on the on the left, the the onset frequencies, and the numbers on the on the right, the 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 carrier frequencies, onset frequencies, the carrier frequencies. And I did that. And it took me weeks to do because I had to find out what each number was, and I had to and I wanted to make sure that uh, I was setting the frequencies at a certain brain frequency. So the brain frequencies again, you have uh, alpha, theta, delta, epsilon, and above beta, you have um, gamma, hypergamma, and lambda. And then there's higher ones from that, but I don't really recommend them because they could be somewhat dangerous. But we'll stop at lambda. So at the time, I didn't think of the lambda and the and the gamma stuff yet. So I wanted to make um, a brainwave entrainment like like Holosync that will take you from alpha, from beta to alpha, slows down to theta, and it slows down to delta and keeps you in delta for 40 extra minutes, which will give you an hour. So you so in 20 minutes, you're exploring alpha and theta, and for 40 minutes, you're exploring delta, because delta is the frequency that stimulates kundalini energy, the kundalini awakening, and, and all that. So that was my focus at the time. So uh, I found a way to create that so that if I took those numbers and I divide each of these numbers by, if I add these numbers up and I divide it by six, I should have an average number that still relates to, that correlates to um, a, a delta frequency. So I did that, did that successfully after weeks and weeks of mapping this thing up. And then I started to experiment with this uh, new, this, this prototype. And then all these amazing things are st started to happen from this prototype. Um, like a lot of synchronicities and things of that sort started, started to happen like right away as I started to use this thing. So I kept on doing that for probably like another year or so with, with using Holosync in the, in the morning and then using my version in the, in the afternoon. And when I was really confident with it, I let go of Holosync because I was actually in the higher levels of Holosync. I was at close to, I, I think I had another um, four sub-levels to go and I was done Holosync, I think. Yeah, it was really close to the end. Um, but um, but I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch over to this new format and try this out for a bit. So I switched over, started doing uh, Unigy full-time. Um, full so I'm doing Unigy for an hour every day with these new frequencies. And I'm studying more about vortex-based mathematics because as I'm doing this, my mind's opening up. And I'm still um, doing the experiments with psychedelics. But at this point, I'm only using psilocybin. There was no LSD. There was no ayahuasca. There was no NDMT. And there was no 5-MeO-DMT um, uh, at this point. It was just psilocybin. So with psilocybin, I'm experimenting. My mind's opening up. All these ideas are coming up with all these different ways I can use the math. Uh, I've mapped them down in, in these scrapbooks. I have them like, yeah, I have these scrapbooks that I still have. And I mapped down. Um, all the different ways that I can use these frequencies in regards to sound. And it also gave me information about other things like into numerology and things of that sort, which I'm not even into now. But back in those days, I was into numerology because numbers was the thing for me. So um, so I mapped all this stuff down. And then um, um, I started, I continued doing my work with uh, psilocybin, had another spiritual experience. And um, this kept going with a lot of peak experiences, not so much with a lot of spiritual ones, but a lot of peak ones would happen. Um, but the spiritual ones would happen from time to time, which were more more profound than the last three that I had prior to working with this new, uh, with this what is now called Unergy. Because at the time I didn't call it Unergy yet. It was only some time went by and I came up with that name and I started calling it Unergy. So I'm using this thing 
um, watching all these things that are happening, uh, which was absolutely amazing for its own thing, for the relative mind, it was amazing. And uh, I said, I'm going to use this full time because I think there's something to do with these numbers, this, this uh, numbers of one, two, four, and seven, five. So I started um, uh, just going into more of the uh, Mark, Mark Rodin's work, but also into the work of another guy named Randy Powell, who was uh, a student of his. So I started looking to Randy Powell's um, information, and I started to apply some of his information to sound as well. And I made different versions of Unergy. And as time went on, and this is now, this is now 2012. So now we're in 2012, when, um, I, which I mentioned in the last one, we were introduced to an NDMT. So now doing an NDMT, more information would pour in my head in regards to how to use these numbers. It was as if there was like, I couldn't see them, but it was like there was alien beings giving information to me how to use these numbers. It was so weird, but there was no actual entity there. It was just this type of communication that was taking place. So I just used the information that came to me, work it out, see if it worked out mathematically, and it worked out mathematically perfectly. I was like, oh gosh. And I'm not even the person that was even good at math. So this ability that I started to develop um, was working in my favor. So I kept on doing that. Um, so now we're having these, ex these experiments now with NNDMT, and I can go on for days with all the things that happened there. Um, and then I, I started to have more uh, type of uh, uh, spiritual awakenings plus peak experiences, but from a DMT perspective. So you have these experiences that are, that are happening on the psilocybin perspective. Now you're having them on a DMT um, perspective. And I must say that when it comes to awakening, there is an essence of an awakening that's always the same. I shouldn't say the essence, but the, ex the expression of an awakening seems to always be the same. Hence why you know it's an awakening because you really, really wake up. Like you literally, when people ask, what does that feel like? It's like, it's like waking up. You wake up and you realize that you're no longer the body or you wake up and you realize that you also include the body. So it gets a little tricky depending on how you go up in, in regards to what non-duality is. But at that time, it opened up this whole new thing of what could happen with uh, five, with uh, not five meal because five meal was years away with an, an NDMT. Um, at some point, which wasn't so wasn't too long later, uh, I started to experiment. That's when I started to experiment with LS, with LSD with energy to see what would happen um, uh, if I used the energy with LSD. And of course, at the time, uh, and still, there's a lot of bad um, rep when it comes to when it comes to uh, LSD. But I, I I started to do a lot of research to see, okay, is this thing safe and whatever? And I read a lot about it. So okay, this is a, this is also an entheogen. Um, this is also considered to be um, one of the tryptamine is part of the tryptamine family. I looked into all the cases. I said, you know what? I think we're going to try this. Uh, so one thing led to another. I tried uh, two small, uh, um, medium doses at the time. Um, they were profound, but they weren't spiritual. But they were profound. Um, and then after the second, the third time, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do two tabs, which was probably about 200 micrograms, and that did it for me. So I'm using. I must say that the, the experiment is you have to use the energy or something like the energy while you're on the substance. So, right, which a lot of people were afraid to do, especially a lot of people in my corner, they were afraid to do. But that was the experiment, because that was the experiment that started off with psilocybin, and that was highly successful. So tried that with, um, with uh, NMDMT, highly successful. So let me try that with um, LSD, highly successful. The things that happened with LSD with the combination of LSD and energy, or any type of um, low, low carrier frequency uh, brainwave entrainment, um, I, I have to say, though, this is where things got rough. Um, when you get into these deeper states, because as you go into the repressed um, unconscious material that needs to be um, uh, dug up, you realize that there's more, so much more. Oh my gosh, there's so much stuff that's buried underneath there 
that I had no idea that this stuff was there. Hence why they called it unconscious, which makes total sense now. Um, when you go into these places, you 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 experience a hell like no other. Like these, like it's not lake and fire, but I understand the metaphor now in regards to lake and fire, um, fire and brimstone, the lake of fire and all that, that type of stuff. Um, the stuff that that brought up, um, the stuff that brought up, uh, that brought up, like you experience all human atrocities, you experience all natural disasters, you experience, you experience all levels of depression and all levels of madness and all levels of like well, mental illness and, and um, all negative feelings and desires and everything it was it was so devastating that when you go into these deeper places you just want to vomit because it takes you into places where um the the image that it will show you is just the sewer and you're walking in the sewer and you're walking deeper and deeper into the sewer until it covers it reaches up to your neck and then it gets up to your nose and then you, your whole head is covered in the sewer but the sewer is not a sewer of this gunk it's it's the sewer of your mind of the of all the stuff that's been locked up there, right? So as you go in there, you're totally aware of what they are. It's just the image, the visual of it is the sewer, but you know what it represents as, or at least that's how I, I interpret it as that. So you go deeper and deeper and deeper into this darkness of the sewer. And as you're in there, you explore the worst crimes and activities and behaviors that a human being can ever express. And it's coming out of you. As it's coming out, as it's coming out, it's coming out, it's coming out. You're at the point where you want to kill yourself when you're buried in this in this in this in this sewer of 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 your uh, of your uh, of your uh, disowned uh, uh, unconscious material, and when you get to the point where you're so buried into in, into this into into this darkness of the soul, the opposite happens. A full breakthrough happens. A full breakthrough. I can't I can't see if it's if it's a an, an implosion or explosion or a combination of both. That happens. And the absolute opposite happens. And when that happens, you realize in that moment of what you actually are, at least as, as Atman. It is so mind-blowing and so profound and so beautiful and so perfect when you realize that all that stuff that you're going through is just the character that you carry. That none of that is even really true. It's just the character that you carry that you chose to carry to walk in this and to walk in this life. But when that happens and this implosion or explosion takes place, the total opposite happens, and you realize, at least at that level, you realize you're like the you realize that you're God, but from a human perspective. So you get to experience what it truly means to be human in that moment. The experience is so profound that I'm willing to go back into those dark places and do it all over again, which I did. I've done this over and over and over again, going into these dark places and exploring these dark places, trying to get used to them. And each time I go into them, not every time, but most times I go into them, I break out into this absolute perfection, this oneness, where I realize what I actually am as human and also um, simultaneously as divine. Thinking though, that's the absolute. It's not even the absolute yet, right? And this is all coming out of as I'm going deeper and deeper in the different levels of the energy because the, the numbers change uh, mathematically every time you go to a deeper level, but the essence of it is always adds up to nine. So it's, it's tricky. I'd have to show a whole thing how I do that. Um, but as you do that, and all you're doing is you take these series of numbers and then you you either, and you divide the number by two. And then the next set of numbers gives you 
uh, whatever frequency or whatever. And when you add that number up, um, the one now becomes a two. And then you go lower, the two becomes a four, and then the four becomes an eight, and it goes all the way down, and then it repeats back to one, two, four, eight, seven, five, and, and all that type of stuff. So I kept on going deeper and deeper at the different levels um, using um, LSD. And I maybe only done maybe uh, psilocybin a few times after that, just to confirm other things that I was trying to confirm. But I now I'm exploring LSD, and I'm also exploring an MDMT from, from time to time. And um, I start mapping down of all the different things, and at this, po this point, poetry spinning out of my head. So poetry is happening and, and um, quotes, I'm writing mystical quotes and all these things are happening in my daily life. I'm going, remember, I'm going to work. I'm going to work as a youth worker as all this stuff is happening. Most people in my work has no idea that any, any of this stuff is going on. They would see me at times doing charts with this, um, with vortex-based mathematics and they'd say, hey, what are you doing? What are, what are you doing with that, that math stuff? What, what are, you, are you going crazy? Like I get comments like that, but they didn't know what I was working on. So I'd laugh <laughs> and I'd just keep working on my maps and work, uh, doodle with, with, my, uh, with my little sketches with vortex-based mathematics because I was so fascinated with the whole idea and all the things that were happening. So I kept on doing that for a number of years because this started, I think I started LSD in the same year of 2012, late 2012. Yeah, late 2012 because I started with the NN uh, DMT with a group of other people in, um, in uh, August of, 20, of 2012. So I spread that information with some of the people, with a lot of people within my in that circle is about probably about 50, 70 of us um, at the time. And some other people decide to experiment with LSD as well. And only maybe one other guy tried the experiment with the energy. And he did this for years, my, 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 my boy. He's my best friend. Um, and he's still uh, part of, he's, he doesn't meditate anymore because he's on a whole different tip right now. But at the time he was, uh, for years, he was putting energy into um, the energy and running the experiments too, and all that. So that's what we did. Um, as time went on, um, I was introduced to microdosing. So I said, okay, let's, um, so I, I did my research on that. I believe the person, what was the name of the, uh, James Feldman, James. Um, and he had this whole uh, um, method of how you should microdose if you choose to microdose. So I started doing that. Um, unfortunately, soon after I started microdosing, we had a suicide in the community. And uh, the, the, the suicide took place and I was microdosing. So everything that was taking place with the suicide, I'm taking this at a whole different level because you're tapping into parts of yourself in the microdose. Like you're not, you're not high or anything like that, but in the microdose, you're kind of tapping, you're tapping into a certain part of yourself, like a, a bit of depth that you wouldn't be in uh, without the microdosing. So I remember really taking this hard when this person um, uh, committed suicide. Um, so I started doing that. I didn't microdose for a very long time, um, but I, I was experimenting the microdosing with what would happen with the energy and also what would happen with neurofeedback training. So I would do neurofeedback training and I'd microdose and see what would happen out of the neurofeedback training, which I did. But I only did like, like I did a lot of neurofeedback training, but I only did like uh, one session with the, micro, with the microdosing. So from there, the good thing I can say about the microdosing is when I came up with this other idea, uh, another energy idea, which right now I call, um, it's called, um, what do I call it again? It's called um, audio, uh, um, what do I call it? I don't know why I might remember this information. Audio, 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 sir, what do they call it? Oh, it'll, it'll come to me. I don't know why I don't remember this. <laughs> it's my own creation. I can't remember. So, um, I, um, I'm sitting there one day, it was right before I was going to work, I'm sitting there and um, I had this epiphany, just hit me just like that. Sitting there, uh, sitting there just before I was getting ready to go to work. And I'm like, oh my gosh, 
all I got to do is take the, the is take the wrapping of the the, the, the rodent coil and um, take the frequencies that it was already done up by um, either Marco Roden or Randy Powell and apply my frequencies to that. So I don't know how to explain it verbally without showing maps, but pretty much what it is, is the rodent coils map is, is wrapped a certain way so that when you turn it on, it gives a certain type of resonance uh, from the sound that it makes. So because you wrapped it in a certain way, the pattern is gonna give an auditory pattern based on the wrapping of that coil. A real, uh, well, sorry, not auditory, but um, electromagnetic energy fields that comes out of that coil. So I said, I can do that with sound because when you do it with sound, the mathematics shows that it's actually circular. So um, I took the, the, the numbers, I figured what the numbers were, and what this does, it changes the carrier frequencies from level one of the energy down to level 13. So it worked out perfectly where it works out, it, it plays on the carrier frequencies of those numbers and it wrapped and it worked out perfectly and how I would um, design uh, Unigy based on these numbers. So the, the carrier frequency switches every 15 seconds or so. And it goes all the way down. And then when it hits the bottom, it goes all the way up. It repeats and that happens for an hour. <coughs> and that happens for an hour. And then um, on the side, I would experiment with that as well. And so as I'm doing that, time goes on and other ideas started to pop in my head. Other mathematical ideas would pop up. I work up the math and it worked out perfectly. At this point, I, I already stopped microdosing. I only microdosed for a short period of time. Uh, the reason why I stopped microdosing is because, um, and this is kind of funny, um, I was microdosing and um, our prime minister, um, Justin Trudeau paid us a visit. And I was microdosing at the time and he, came, he paid us a visit. So I remember he had his guard dogs and the guard dogs had to sniff me. And I got so paranoid. I said, oh my gosh, the dog's gonna know that I'm on LSD. Oh my gosh, and Justin Trudeau's in the building. <laughs> so the dog sniffed me. I swear the dog gave me a look like, okay, buddy, I'm gonna keep your secret. <laughs> and it went about its way. Um, met uh, Justin Trudeau, came to our building, did his whole speech, whatever, whatever, and whatever. I said, you know what? I gotta stop microdosing. I can't be doing this <laughs> in these environments because boy, I don't know what's the outcome is gonna be, unexpected outcome, being sniffed by a guard dog, right? So that's so that came to an end from that point on. And then after that, um, yeah, I feel like I'm missing something, but after that is when um, we were introduced to ayahuasca. Uh, I've always known about ayahuasca, but I didn't have any, uh, uh, any uh, connections in that regard. Um, but um, after all, we met um, a minister, a minister, he's a minister of um, um, some form of um, spirituality, some form of metaphysical um, uh, type of, uh, um, I don't know if it's a religion or a philosophy, and he, he, he knew, a, he knew a, a shaman. And so he introduced us to a shaman. We went, we saw the shaman and we did ayahuasca for the first time. Of course, during ayahuasca, I wasn't able to bring energy in. So now I'm hoping because the part that I'm missing is in 2010 is when I fell into a permanent um, meditative state, which I'm still in right now. So in 2010, while I was doing a workshop, I remember falling into the state and I've never left that state. Um, that stayed permanently. So I said, you know what? I can do other sessions with the energy. Sorry, I can do other sessions with um, with psychedelics without using the energy in some of those sessions. If I couldn't bring it in, I just didn't bring it in. I would depend on the state that I'm actually, the permanent state I'm actually in. So I would run these experiments with um, with uh, ayahuasca. On two occasions, though, I did sneak in the energy and I did use the energy while doing ayahuasca. But I was I had to make sure that the shaman didn't think it was some other type of meditation. Uh, I told him, so, no, I'm just wearing the headphones to keep my ears warm. 
or something. I said something and he allowed me to wear them. So I did do uh, experiments with them eventually, but I ended up doing um, uh, 10 to 12 sessions with the shaman in regards to ayahuasca. And I can go on for days about what that was like and what else. And also it did the same thing in regards to going deep into the darkness and bringing out even other stuff that LSD didn't do. Um, because ayahuasca has its, the thing I love about with ayahuasca that um, as much as LSD had a lot of um, permanent changes, um, there's a lot of stuff that happens with ayahuasca after doing a certain amount of sessions. I can't speak to that in regards to not using brainwave entrainment or energy, but for me using energy, I remember um, after doing my last two sessions, the last two sessions, I didn't, nothing happened. Um, because at some point when I'm using some of these uh, psychedelics, especially with energy, I, I, I hit a plateau and nothing, nothing takes place. So I remember with doing my last two ayahuasca sessions, nothing much, nothing much happened. So I said, I think my time is up with ayahuasca. So when I, uh, after I moved away from ayahuasca, I'm sitting at home one day and another change happened. I remember the permanent change that took place. Um, this time it wasn't like a permanent meditation state because I'm already in that. But this thing, there was this thing in the, in my, um, in my psyche that I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get over. It was like something, I guess, that because of my childhood and the stuff that happened there and the trauma that took place, my center of gravity or something in my center of gravity that wouldn't change. And reading the, the documents with Holosync at the time, Bill Harris, when he was alive, was, was saying that there's certain things that Holosync can't do. The other, the other things you may have to have a, a psychotherapist who specializes in that type of work that can help you with the dark night of the soul and things of that sort, but there's certain things that Holosync can't do on its own. It can do great things in combination, but on its own, it can't do that. So I assume that would be the same thing with the energy. So after doing the, the 12 sessions with, with, um, with, the, with the shaman with ayahuasca, um, I'm home one day uh, after I was doing a workshop in um, suicide prevention, either with suicide prevention or suicide intervention. I had to do a three-day uh, workshop. So when I came home from that workshop, I was laying in bed and a shift happened. I felt it. Boom. That thing that I've been holding on to for how many years? At this time, 40-something years of my life just dissipated. God, never came back to this very day. And that's the thing that I've been trying to get rid of the whole time. The thing that matters is a subtle thing, but that's the thing that mattered most to me. I need to get rid of that thing that had been bothering me. And when that disappeared, life changed dramatically after that. I'm not going to say that the things were so apparent that people would recognize it. It was just this thing that was a knot that I got rid of the knot and the knot was un. I got rid of the knot and everything was fine after that. And I've been fine ever since then. Um, but of course, my journey with psychedelics wasn't really over yet. It wasn't really over yet. Because I, um, I guess subconsciously, I felt that this, the, the awakenings that I did have, because I've, I've had maybe 50 of these awakenings, right? About 50, about 50 of these awakenings, plus other mind-blown peak experiences. Um, I didn't know what it was. I just feel like, there's something, but I don't know what it is. I didn't feel dissatisfied in any, by any means. I could go on the rest of my life like this and be perfectly fine. But I felt the journey wasn't over. I felt the journey wasn't over. So I think I mentioned in the last segment that I met uh, someone who I met at uh, while doing ayahuasca, and she introduced me to 5-MEO. Did I mention that? You would know because you, you, you did the editing, so I guess it's more um, fresh in your mind than it is in my mind. Um, so she introduced me five me so she introduced me to a, a practitioner a well respect a well-respected practitioner who does this and um wow when um because i remember uh, uh when i when she told me about her experience I, I i think i said in the last one 
she did it, but she couldn't, she wasn't able to, to express to me what happened with that session. It was probably about a year later when I hit her up again and she said, oh, let me just connect you to the practitioner, which she did. And uh, so when I met with this practitioner now and uh, started working with 5MEO, oh my gosh, who knew that everything that I've been talking and preaching, at this point, I'm already I'm a spiritual teacher. I'm already doing uh, 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 workshops with how many people? Uh, in my in my community, uh, like how many people at this point? I don't know, probably a thousand, maybe eight hundred people at this point. Um, I've already posted all these uh, uh, bits of poetry and memoirs online and my blog and all of that. And then I, I try I try five a meal, which I couldn't do with the energy, of course. Um, but I am in this permanent state, so I said, let me uh, do this five five a meal thing. And my lord, what the hell? What's LSD? I'm sorry. <laughs> This was this was a whole different ball game in regards to what this does. So now I'm experiencing God from God's perspective, not from the human perspective, not from any of those perspectives. It includes those perspectives, but now I'm experiencing the cosmic mind of all things. Right? So first was a bright light. There's a bright light, a bright light that takes place, and your ego goes, holy shit. And then your ego goes into it and dissolves into this bright light. And then you realize you're this light and then the light goes away because now there's no light to be seen. And the next thing you know, you're in the, enti the entire universe. And this is before December uh, 14th. This is before meeting Paramahamsa Vishwananda and all of that. So now I'm having this experience being one with God and I am friggin' blown away of what took place with this session. I was so blown. I said, I don't even know what to do with this, with this information. Oh my gosh, right? I go back home, I, I meditate with the energy. Uh, and the thing that I did, I did forget, I was, I was also experimenting with um, nootropics. So for those that don't know, nootropics are like, you know, um, um, mind enhancing supplements or, or synthetic um, uh, uh, pills that people can take to enhance their minds to, to some level. But there are natural ones like GoToCola and, um, and um, uh, Bacapa, Bacapa. And, and there's other ones, which I realize enhances um, the psychedelic experience, especially while you're on energy. So I should have mentioned that because that happened years ago. So I'm doing the, the psychedelics with the, um, the nootropics along with pulsing or with the energy at this point. So, and after I switch over the energy, blah, 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 just to add that in there. So the day that before I met Chad, um, the practitioner, I did, um, I did, I did my hour of energy. And then I, I took the nootropics, whatever, and I, and I go and I do my first session with, uh, with um, 5-MeO DMT. And everything that I've ever done with NNDMT, LSD, as profound as they were, and psilocybin, this one session of 5-MeO wiped out all of those things in one shot. I, I can't even explain to what degree what non-duality really is, uh, what, what it really is at this level. Uh, to to have that experience to that degree, I couldn't stop talking about this. I couldn't talk about this with everyone, uh, but it was a coworker who was also a counselor. I had a lot of um, coworkers who are counselors, so that's how I dealt with some of my stuff. I talked to my counselors; they give me free sessions. Uh, that's how I did some of the psychotherapy work uh, by talking to my counselor, uh, my counselor friends. So she was one of the people I told this experience to, and she was just so blown away by what took place. I was so blown away by this; I had to go again. And also, I must mention that. When I did the first uh, um, session of um, 5-MEO, um, a lot of the Kundalini stuff started to happen. I've been going through Kundalini act um, activation for years, but then I'm going through these things, the, the, this period where I'm having these seizures, uh, I'd wake up 
in a seizure where I wake up and I'm totally in this full body seizure while fully aware that I'm in it, right? And I'll be like, oh gosh, I can just stop it. I can just stop the seizure. And I can do this at will. I can be standing there and I can bring the seizure on and I can stop it. All these weird things were happening. Um, it got to the point where um, I'd be walking and a smile would automatically just come on my face, not with my intention. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the Kundalini again. I'd have to hide behind cars and, and try to calm my face down and whatever. And I remember I was at my son's graduation, his high school graduation. And while he was having his graduation, it came on. So I'm watching the graduation. I'm having a happy moment. My son's graduating and the smile comes on my face. I couldn't get rid of. So it came up and I couldn't get rid of it. I was like, oh gosh, I have to, right? His mom's sitting beside me. I'm like trying to wait for this thing to, to wear off. And finally the, it wears off and I'm like, oh my God, what's going on here? Right. So all these things are happening in my body. Um, I mentioned it to the practitioner, but he said he's never met anyone where something like that has ever happened before. And I said, yeah. He said, is it, is it a bother to you? I said, no, I'm very amused by it, actually. I have no problems with this happening because I'm very amused by what's happening because I'm like, this is what the Kundalini, Kundalini activation really is. Um, I don't know if it's different uh, for other people because I am going by using 5-MeO and with the combination of doing whole, um, energy and all that. So maybe it's the more extreme version of that. I, I don't know, but based on what I've read, it seems to be the same, especially from other people who've gone through it. It sounds to be the same thing. So I'm going through all these, um, these, these Kundalini, um, uh, uh, ex, um, well, activation experiences. And I said, wow, 5MEO is really doing something to me. So two, uh, a week later, I went back and I did another session with him, uh, with the practitioner. And then after I, I, I went back again, uh, in the following year. So months went by and then the following year I did, I did more sessions with him. And then at this point, after that point, I met uh, Paramahamsa Vishwananda. So by the time I met Paramahamsa Vishwananda, the seizures and stuff were already gone. So when I meet Paramahamsa Vishwananda and he looks in my eyes for 20 seconds to do darshan, the seizures came back. <laughs> so they're all back. Same thing like with the five MEO, all this stuff came back. And I was like, okay, there's something going on. As I was saying in the last a segment about this uh, this this guru um, Paramahamsa Vishwananda, and uh, as I said in the last in the last one, um, now at this point I've already done how many sessions of five meo uh, DMT? Mine is totally blown. Um, shifts have already happened. Um, I didn't go through a lot of the psychological stuff because I I felt that I was going through all the psychological stuff throughout my whole journey anyway. So a lot of the stuff I was already getting out. So by the time I got to five meo, none of this um, psychological stuff came up. It was all physical. No emotional stuff came up. It was all physical. Um, the emotional and the psychological stuff came up, of course, with my journey with Holosync and Energy uh, through uh, psilocybin, through um, NNDMT, and through uh, uh, LSD. But by the time I got to 5-MeO, none of that stuff came up. Um, so I'm dealing with the physical aspects now of all the stuff that's coming. So I meet Paramahamsa Vishwananda. The, 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 the physical stuff started happening again. Um, all of that. And then, as I said in the last one, I'm sitting there meditating with energy as I always do every single day. And that's when it happened. And then when I, what happened, as I said before, what took place, um, this was beyond non-duality. Now I put this in the category of uh, absolute monism, where as much as I was always preaching that everything is one thing, this thing that is actually one thing is beyond anything that is this one thing, this one substance, this one essence, this one reality, this one spirit, this one whatever, flesh, bone, rocks, um, uh, electromagnetic energy, uh, dark energy, dark, dark matter, 
um, the, the, the four natural forces, string, string theory, gosh, classic mechanic, uh, classical mechanics, everything, one source, one essence, um, God and man, absolutely the same. Man and animal, absolutely the same. Man and ant and God, absolutely the same. Uh, Brahman um, and, 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 and Atman, exactly the same. Um, comedy and, and, and action, exactly the same. Comedy and romance, exactly the same. Everything. Planets, solar systems, galaxies, universes, everything. One thing, and even beyond the idea of one the singularity of absolute, of the absolute, of the absolute, of the absolute, of the absolute took place in that moment. And I will never be the same again after that moment occurred. <laughs> the most, I say this all the time, my friend Amy will laugh at me because she says, Morgan, you always say that last experience was the best experience of your life. But I must say that experience was, wasn't, wasn't even an, an experience at all because there was no me there. The Morgan that you know, whatever, all vanished. The ego that Morgan, whatever, the, 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 the character that Morgan is, all of that vanished within that moment. But it also included Morgan, but not just Morgan. It included you. It included everyone I've ever known, everyone I've never met, the whole entire universe, not just the universe itself, but the beginning of the universe. So everyone and everything that's ever existed was included in that, including the, um, the, the, all the, if you want to say, the, our interpretation of, of um, the Big Bang because it's not what people think it is, but all the Big Bangs prior to the Big Bang prior to that, if I'm going to use that as a term, was all part of that. And everything that will happen in the universe in the future, the destruction of the universe, I was all of that and more. Absolutely all of it and more and more and more and more, yet at the same time, none of it at all. The words that I'm using doesn't describe what I'm trying to say, but I was none of it at all. So it was, it was the, the one self the, the self, the no self, it was, it was, it was nirvana, yet it was samsara, because all the stuff that ever happened in the universe was included in that. It was the death and the rebirth of itself as the universe, as it kept on going, but there was no time. So time was out of the equation, yet it included time. So as there's this death and rebirth of the absolute universe, the death and the, re and the rebirth didn't even, didn't, didn't even exist, because even that was one thing. So there was no universe, the universe never existed, yet the universe does exist as it dies to itself and gives birth to itself over and over and over again. But in this, in this, in this experience, all of that is also one thing. So it's not like you're watching a continuation of something happening as yourself as you continue in this thing. You are, you, you are that. So now I really understand when they use the term, when they say that, or the phrase that you are that. You are that goes so deep in regards to what it actually means, it's not what people think it means. It doesn't really mean what spiritual teachers, I can't speak for all spiritual teachers, but some spiritual teachers when they say that you are that. Um, because when they mean uh, that you are that and how deep that goes, um, I, in that moment, you realize that you are creativity, the ultimate creativity, not just the creativity that Morgan produced by making music and, and, uh, and making skits for a comedy show and making binaural beats and making energy, it included all creative works. It includes all fields of, 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 of academia. It, it includes all forms of athletics. It includes all movies, all types of shoes, all, <laughs> all species of all animals. It includes, 
Oh my gosh. It includes absolutely, absolutely, absolutely everything. Every five and experience I had, it included all that. It included every LSD experience, it included all my natural. I also had natural experiences without any psychedelics of, of, of um, peak experiences and type of awakenings. Uh, not to the same degree, but I've had many of those as well, which I don't talk about much because I'm talking about things in comparison. So there's things I leave out because like in comparison, this thing was greater than that. So I, I leave out certain things and talk about other things, but I could, I could talk about them. But um, yeah, it, all of that was included. So to, to have an experience where, I, I want people to understand this. It includes all detail. So not only are you everything and everyone, it includes the situations that everything and everyone has ever gone through. It includes every detail that you've ever gone through as a human being all those details are also included in that moment. So you're all, you're all detail, all situations, um, all environments, all uh, um, uh, catastrophic moments, all blissful moments. You're, you are every day that has ever taken place. You're every uh, uh, um, rotation around the sun, um, the moon going around the earth. You're all of that. Um, you're the sun itself. You're every star. In, in every friggin' star in the entire universe, you're all of that. You're all of dark matter, all of dark energy. You're all of, you're all of, um, gosh, oh my God, what an extraordinary experience that I will talk about to the day I die. I cannot believe what took place that day. Um, uh, uh, and if you, if, you hung, if you hung up with me on a regular basis, it's all you hear me talk about. You know, ask any of my friends, it's like, Morgan never stops about this stuff. This stuff is, is so extraordinary. And the thing is too, what's extraordinary, even though that experience is not happening, actually this is happening right now as I speak, but even though I'm having a regular quote unquote human experience, the thing that comes after it, even though it's not the same, because that thing is so apparent that when it happens, you know that it happened and there's no denying it. And anyone who doesn't believe me, I just don't give a shit. I know it happened. So it doesn't matter to me who believes and who does believe. You can send me an email and say, hey, I love what you did. That's great. I, I accept that. You can even send me an email saying what you're talking is bullshit. I don't, I don't care because it happened and it was the most extraordinary experience of my life, the most extraordinary experience of anyone's life. Gosh, I, I, an experience that includes all evolution of all kinds. All of that is included. All other beings that live on other planets, whatever, all of that is included as well. This is how extraordinary this thing is. And it all happened. I swear it all happened like in one second even though this experience lasted for a period of time, I swear it all happened like in one second, because in that experience, a second and an hour and in, and eternity were exactly the same thing. There were no difference between a second or uh, um, uh, whatever the, the smallest length of, of time is um, to, uh, to, uh, to a second, to, a, to a, a minute, to an hour, to a day, to a week, to a month, to a year, to a decade. It didn't matter. All that stuff was exactly the same thing. And this was beyond any non-dual experience. And I'm claiming to have the highest levels of non-duality, uh, non-dual experiences. This even surpassed that by a trillion of how extraordinary this thing was. And I don't even know how I'm able to contain myself on a regular basis going to work. Cause I still go to work. I do all the things I've always done. I've never taken any time off because I've never had the psychological stuff that came along. Well, I, I probably am going to some of the psychological stuff. Because I did talk about um, the PST type of trauma that comes with that, the fear that I have just thinking about it, right? As much as I'm delighted by it, there's a sense of fear that comes with that. It's like, 
I never want to have that experience again, even though I do, but I don't, I do, but I don't. And if I try to, I probably block it out because that experience is so, you, you really feel like you, you felt like you died because it is a true, uh, now in this, in this moment, I actually experience a true authentic, a, a true authentic uh, ego death in that state. Cause coming to look at it now, I was dead, even though my body was doing all the stuff. My body broke out in, into a full seizure. And, and as it broke out, I'm not sure if I mentioned in the last one, but as it broke out and um, uh, I couldn't stop the body movements, everything in my body broke out and it felt like it was water, but like a dry version of water. And so all that stuff happened. And then all the, 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 every, the cells, the molecules, the atoms and the particles all broke out and said in every single language, in one voice, I am God in that moment where all the, 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 the petals were pouring out of my head, hitting the ground, like crystal light petals hitting the ground as it dissipated, as it hit the floor and everything just poured out of my brain, out of my neck, out of my chest, out of my chakras, out of my feet, everything. And I just lied there. I fully surrendered to all that is coming to the full realization of what I truly am, but not just me, but all of us and everything in the, in the entire universe as itself, as not itself, as presence, as no presence, as the almighty, as God, as Allah, as Jehovah, as Brahan, as Brahan, as Abha, as Jehovah, as absolutely everything. Everything beyond everything, beyond everything. I wish I had the words to describe this because I can't. I can't express this anymore. I see why now so many sacred books are written about this. And even though there's so many sacred books written about this, no one can explain it. I haven't read a single text yet that actually explained what I experienced. But I understand the essence of it. The essence of it makes, moves me because it's beautiful text. You read and you're like, oh my gosh, but it's not it. It's just man's interpretation of what we go through after having that experience and coming back to tell it, but it's not it. Now there's people out there I'm sure will disagree who probably never had that experience, but I'm telling you, there is no way to describe this in words, none. Yet every book that's ever been written, whether it's sacred or profound, doesn't matter, it could be Sports Illustrated, it could be Playboy, it could be all, all that stuff is an expression of this, of, of this absolute monism. Every single, every single book is an expression of that. So when I look through books, when people ask me, well, what changed? It's hard for me to explain what changed because I can't even find the words to express what changed. But what I can say is, it doesn't matter what I'm looking at. Anything that I'm looking at is an expression of that divine. That's why I'm able to handle certain situations because all that stuff changed. So I can be looking at the worst uh, vile thing. And to me, I can see that it's vile. I can see all that, but the relative self is still there. But I see it as a sacred text. I see it as a sacred image. I see it as a, and it's one of the many expressions that we are making. It's just nobody, hardly anyone can see it. It's only like what, 0.01%, of the world's population who are able to do that, who can see that. And I'm so fortunate um, for whatever it is, if it was any work that I did or Paramahamsa Vishwananda, or, or if it was simply the touch of grace, that I'm fortunate enough to even have this experience and still go into this experience right now as I'm speaking to you. And that's, level of creativity with a capital C. Wow. Yeah. There was a moment, there was a moment after that experience happened that every time I tried to talk about it, I was moved to tears. I'm feeling it right now. I'm trying to hold myself back because I'm a man. I'm trying to hold it back. But, 
but uh, the first few, the first two years, it, I, there's no way I can talk about it without being moved to tears. <laughs> All I can say is, whatever happened, thank you. And I'm thanking everyone in this moment because everyone's a part of this. Everyone is this, everyone's a part of this. Everyone that ever existed, uh, will existed and, and, and will never existed plays a role in this. Because the thing that I realized in that moment, um, because in other levels of uh, uh, spiritual awakenings, like in the causal awakening, there is a cause and effect. So there is a cause, a, a divine cause that's causing everything into existence. That is true. But the higher levels of, of spiritual awakening of that, of that sort, which I would call, um, you know, full enlightenment, Turya Tita, um, there is no cause and effect. Cause and effect is exactly the same thing. Nothing ever caused anything to happen. So they're both true. So there is a cause that caused everything to happen in the causal area, but in the higher level, there was there, there have been there was there was never a cause that led to an effect. The cause and effect are exactly the same thing. So what I realized in that moment that everything that was happening to me in that moment, if, if I can put it that into words, and everything that's happening right now in this moment, and everything that's happening in the next moment, and everything that's around me as a part of my environment and your environment and everybody's environment is the cause of everything that's happening into being. So cause doesn't happen necessarily in the past in time. Because remember, this thing is beyond time. It's happening right now, and it will happen, quote unquote, in the future. So past, present, and future in that moment when you when you when that experience occurs, all of that is also one thing. So past, present, future is one thing, right? So past, present, future being one thing, the cause and effect is one thing, and that's when you have the true um, uh, um, uh, genuine experience of a of a non dual a true non-dual experience. Those are different levels. People need to understand there are different levels of non-duality, right? There's not just one. And that's why there's so many arguments about what non-duality is. And my answer to that is they're all right. All of them are right about what non-duality is. It's just now at this point, you're combining all the perspectives of non-duality and putting into one. And one's not the proper term, but forgive me that I have to use the, the, the I have to use the, I have to use the, uh, the term one, but all the, uh, all the, the aspects of non-duality that's ever been spoken about are all true. All the aspects or the perspectives you ever heard about um, absolute monism, which is not that popular. A lot of people don't know about that, but they're all true. All the different uh, aspects of monism are all true. They just come from different perspectives. So when I hear the argument, I can join in the argument and pick a side, but the whole time I'm having the, the, this, the discussion, I'm in agreement that all of them are equally the same. It's just part of the same thing. So um, you realize in that moment that all religions, even the ones that we don't approve of are part of this expression. They're all, they're all there, they're all true. All the different levels, all the different aspects of, 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 um, of um, Vedanta, because there's uh, uh, um, schools of thought, they disagree with each other. Like Advaita Vedanta, which I would say I'm more a part of, um, they disagree with the other, well, well, the other ones will disagree with Advaita Vedanta, right? But from my experience, they're all true. So yeah, there's there's an there's a there's an there's a, a saying that everything is is non-dual and everything is one as God or there's one without a second. That's that's non-duality. That's true. But there's another uh, uh, Vedanta tradition where um, it's dual. It's dual. There is no non-duality. It's dual. But you know what? That's true too. All right. So I have no arguments between non-duality, duality, and all the other stuff in between because all of them are the same. All the religions, the essence of all of them are all the same. I can walk into any religious group or any group. I I, I may make fun of like. The Wicca community and things of like that from time to time, but I, but realistic outside of jokes, I can sit with them and and commune with them, no problem. And uh, it doesn't matter what the group is; it could be any call. I can sit and commune with you. It doesn't mean I'm going to be a part of your group, 
but I can, uh, but I understand from the essence of where you're coming from, and that's where I'm coming. That's where I'm, I'm, I'm. Um, that's where I'm trying. That's what I'm embodying when I'm when I'm in, encountering other types of groups and things of that nature. I can sit with anyone. I can do all of that because in that experience, I think that's what I can say. What, what changed? Um, I see everything as the same thing as I'm keeping my relative self, being separate, being Morgan, being the former comedian, being the youth worker. Um, being whoever, being the father, being all these things. Um, all of that stuff is true from a relative standpoint, but from the ultimate standpoint, all of this is me and all of it is you and all of this is everyone who's watching. All of it is everything that can't, everything that's non-living, it's all that too. Um, and yeah, and that's the change that's made in me. As I keep this body, you don't see a beard, you don't see whatever, there's no robe, there's no slippers, there's no barefoot. Nothing, just a regular guy who's walking around with this thing in my head and throughout my whole entire body. And that's my experience. And I think that, well, I know it will be with me, not just till I die, but if I happen to come back, which from the experience, it, it felt like I won't be coming back, but whatever, if I do come back, whatever happens, happens and whatever. And that, that thing is still with me as uh, the divinity of what I am and what everything is. It's so fascinating to trace, as we've done today, your the arc of your creative life and this uh, arc of inner alchemy, really, in many ways. I think that's a theme that even from your earliest days up to what you're describing now, there's this consistent theme, it seems. I wonder, to, to finish, and this has been absolutely remarkable. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, my pleasure. For Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Because a lot of people um, may not give me this opportunity. Um, and I, I, I want to thank you personally for giving me this opportunity because these are things I've been holding on to for a very long time. Yeah, I had these conversations with other people and I had them on other, um, other podcasts to some degree. But there's a lot of podcasts that I have done that the theme is not spirituality and I'm not able to really express that to that degree. So I just want to thank you personally for that. It's my pleasure. What advice would you have for people who are on that same trajectory. I'm thinking of maybe three-ish types of people. Young person with that creative impulse, who perhaps with some darkness inside to <laughs> alchemize. You know, what would you say to somebody, somebody like that? What would you say to somebody at the height of their creative powers, as you were, for example, during the years of Buzz, at the, the height of your um, the synergy of, of, of that, uh, of that sort of outward creativity. What would you say to somebody who is going into the period of post creativity, when mm. the inner work starts to um, disrupt the uh, outer creativity? When you start to go through mm. that desert time of, of healing of, of uh, reorganization of the inner world, etc. Those are the three sorts of categories of people I'm imagining. When you think of them, or yourself perhaps at each of those phases, what advice uh, would you give to, to those listening who are in those positions now? The advice would be the same for all three positions, is step out of the way. Let the creative process happen. So step out of the way. Um, this is a saying that comes from the late Bill Harris, because he was the guy uh, that when I was doing uh, Holosync, 
that really uh, broke me into understanding, or at least, um, you know, understanding the works or the, 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 the philosophies that are out there in regards to metaphysics and non-duality, even though he's never used the word non-duality. But um, he always had the saying um, that we had to go by when we meditate with Paulo Sink, and that was, uh, whatever happens, let it be okay. So in your worst, in, the, in, in, the, in your worst moments, even in the moments where the creativity isn't coming out, and or you're in the moments where um, what you're used to doing is in the back, is in the is in the is in the in the back in in, in the in the um, in, in the background, and this other thing is coming out. Just step out of the way and allow that to happen, because you'll be amazed of how that's gonna how that's gonna blossom. Uh, and it takes time, and it's not something that's gonna happen right away. I, I just want to say that if you're frustrated. Um, even allow allow that frustration to come forth, because I, I believe that's part of the, the expression as well. It's just you're now going through frustration with more awareness. You're allowing yourself to be frustrated, so you just allow it to come out and just sit with it and just let it be okay. All this stuff is coming out is part of that journey in in regards to allowing the full um, creative expression to to flourish as it's supposed to. And the moment that we say, "Oh gosh, but my friends are watching me. My friends are being critical of me." That's when you're we're kind of hindering it. You, I don't believe you can stop the process, but when you hinder it, that's what causes the that's what causes some of the suffering that sometimes we go through. So if you want to suffer less, stop all resistance. Right by stopping all resistance, you allow for whatever needs to happen to happen because it is going to be painful at times, um, and it's different for everyone. Because for me, I said that the psychological stuff wasn't the most it wasn't the most challenging for, thing for me. I had my moments in the psychological moments where it was very very painful. And I've had my emotional moments where it was very, very painful as well. But the most uh, uh, challenge for me was physical. It was the physical stuff, right? Very challenging. Very, very ch So it's going to be different for, for different people. And even that, I had to step back and allow whatever pain that was supposed to happen to let it, let it happen and let it be okay. Um, because the expression that comes out after that, I, I understand now why all of that, that stuff is important. And I know for the average person, they won't be able to see that, especially when you're, when you're in that moment of going to your whether it's you're, you're being stifled or you go into writer's block or if you even go into psychological, um, uh, uh, emotional or physical pain, what I'm trying to, sh to tell everyone is just step out of the way. Allow whatever needs to happen to happen because pain's gonna happen. There's nothing you can do about that, but you can control uh, the amount of suffering that you go through. That you can control. At least on some level, you can control that. And you do that by just letting go. Just allow it to happen. Let it be okay. When it comes up, just say to yourself, wow, that's interesting, and just let it be. And if you can get through that, and it's gonna, this happens over and over and over again for years, trust me, if you're on a spiritual path and you already have a practice, right? Because it helps if you have a practice. If you have a practice, um, something's going to come out of it. And the thing that comes out of it at the, at the end is, is miraculous. Um, and it's going to take years for most people. So some people can happen right away. Um, but it's going to take years. But trust me on this. It's gonna when it happens, you can understand why all that stuff was necessary and why it was unique to you. But that's what I would say to those people. Morgan O. Smith, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.